This is Robert Clotworthy, the narrator of The Curse of Oak Island, and I have a question for you. Could it be that you are listening to The Curse of Oak Island and Beyond live stream? This is a top pocket find, mate, for sure. Hey, how's everybody doing today? All right, we are live and welcome to the Curse of Oak Island and Beyond live stream. I'm your host, Jeff Freeman, and right over here, we have my co-host, Jack Campbell. Jack, how you doing today? I'm doing good, Jeff. Having a good afternoon. I'm telling you, it's beautiful outside. It's really, uh, it's a great Sunday uh, afternoon. The sun is shining. It's warm out there. My goodness, kind of hard to sit in here today, but I tell you what, I am really excited for the fact that we have our guest coming up, the guest that we have coming up today. I've been looking forward to this one for a long time. And uh, I also wanted to say a great uh, and, a, and a welcome to our current new moderator that we have uh, that signed on with us is, uh, is Jan. Jan uh, Anderson, thank you very much for uh, coming on and joining our, our team here and helping us, helping Linda out, I should say, not help, you know, you're helping me out too, but you're helping Linda out. We really, Probably really appreciate that. Yeah, very much. Um, folks, I also wanted to say, if you're watching out on the YouTube side, hey, do us a favor and click on that subscribe button for us, if you would, please, and be so kind. That uh, We really appreciate that very much, and it kind of helps us out in the long run. And if you like our content, just go ahead and click on that thumbs up. And if you don't, I guess you can give us a thumbs down, but I'd really just like to see those thumbs up. But anyway, we really appreciate that again very much. If you don't mind, it doesn't cost you a thing. And like I said, it just kind of helps us out there a little bit with that. But uh, anyway... We have our guest today, James A. McQuiston, and he is an author who's written countless books, six or seven of them on Oak Island alone. Uh, he's full, He's got so much history and things to talk about with us today. Um, so we're going to bring him on the show here. All right. Welcome All right. aboard. <laughs> there we wow. go. All right. It's the curse of Oak Island. It is. is. (laughs) Most definitely the curse of Oak Island. Well, thank you so much, Jim, for taking time out. And and folks, we were asking him earlier, you know, do you prefer to be uh, go by Jim or James? And uh, so he he said, well, the James is the more formal, I guess. But uh, as you can see on his name tag there, Jim works for us, I guess. Right. So. Well, the reason I did that was because it was quicker to log back in. <laughs> Two less letters I've been with. Yeah. Oh, man. But the people don't know out there is we just spent about 40 minutes trying to get this link up. But hopefully it works the rest of the show. I'm not touching anything. Yeah, I'm, no, gonna, listen, I'm not going to either. I'm not going to touch anything. Yeah, We're just going to, I might bring up a picture or two, but that should, <laughs> hopefully that won't affect anything. I'm not, I shouldn't, yeah, it shouldn't. But we'll, <laughs> But uh, anyway, welcome. Thank you so much for coming. We really appreciate uh, you coming and sharing your knowledge and some of your research with us today, for sure. And uh, But I wanted to ask you, kind of going back to your beginnings a little bit about writing, where did you kind of get an interest to, did you come as being a child to be want to be a writer, or how did that start? Well, uh, actually, way back in high school, I, my favorite classes were English and history, and I didn't have any idea in my mind that I wanted to be a writer, but I used to read a lot of like Jack London and the Count of Monte Cristo, things like that. And uh, this one guy that I looked up to a lot in school, he wrote in my yearbook that I was someday going to be a writer, which I had no inkling. And But that all kind of went by the wayside, but I got into the print industry and it was a combination of print and publishing. And I always was attracted to the publishing part of it, more so than the uh, printing. And I ran some newspapers, and I 
even though I was production manager, I would get my fingers in the pie of, of the writing as much as I could, or at least the editing. And so I spent all those years in the print business and retired a little early and decided I was going to compensate my Uncle Sam money by writing books. So um, I had started out writing a family history book, which was more just for the love of it. And it was a nice big 286 page book. And that was in 2002. And then we're related to a guy that's the only guy ever called the father of Alaska or the father of the Yukon. So in 2007, I wrote another book. That was that one. Then when I retired, I wrote uh, one on the first mayor of Pittsburgh and one on a hero of the Lake of uh, the Battle of Lake Erie from 1812. Wow. And, uh, but in 2016, in the fall, I was updating that original book, that family history book, and I read again about Sir Ian MacDonald McCushton, who is the premier night baronet of Nova Scotia. Right. And I had just started watching, I think that was season three of Oak Island, I had just started watching the show, and it just struck me watching the show, Premier Knight Baronet of Nova Scotia, Oak Island, Nova Scotia, maybe they have something to do with each other. So I actually emailed them hoping that they could give me information, oh, and it okay. turned out that they just kept asking questions and asking questions. It started <laughs> with it started with Paul Troutman and... Uh, lady that works behind the scenes there and then pretty soon Rick was aboard and Doug uh, Kroll was aboard and by now I've got just about everybody's email and when I send out a uh, a new historical find it goes to like a, a spray of people that and some respond and some don't but they always say please keep sending them <laughs> you know right. they don't want to not get them so uh after about four to five months of answering emails, and some of the emails were very long answers, uh, they said, you have to write a book because all of this only exists in our emails, and it's going to get lost. And if you write a book, we'll make sure we sell it up up here and, and help you out with it however we can. So that awesome. was my first one, this Oak Island Missing Links. Right. And... Uh, what I wrote about in that one was uh, I have a theory about Goose Cap. Uh, the bottom line is I think he, if if it was the Scots that came over with Sinclair, I think he was a gentleman named Gilliscop, which was uh, Gaelic for Archibald, uh, Gilliscop Campbell, and he was a cousin of Henry Sinclair. I also descend from James Gunn, who's supposed to be the Westford Knight, and uh, so Gunn was also married to a Sinclair. So there was quite a family operation. And so in that first book, I talk about why they could have gone, gone over to North America. There wasn't anything stopping them. They, it was a much simpler trip than Columbus made. Uh, mm -hmm. He went 3,800 miles across the open ocean. They went about 2,500 miles uh, from Pop. Oops. Okay, yeah, we're having a little bit of a. I'm from. Okay, uh, as soon as he comes back here, I'll let him know he froze. Twenty five hundred miles the was the last thing. <laughs> you're you're breaking up a little bit. You're freezing on us there. Islands. Nice. Okay. okay. Yeah, 
Ooh, we're only getting bits and pieces, Jim. We're only getting bits and pieces of what you're saying there. Hold on just a second. We're going to see if it settles right. down. Here. So, oh, I don't think he can hear me when it's doing that. No. The trip was actually a lot. Mm. It's breaking up, Jim. And in the end, it was only taking them about five Oh, there it goes again. I thought we were solid there for a second. Good... was only taking about five mm. weeks. Yeah, let's see if I can. Um, I don't have. Let's see. So, also. In that book, I have some. Uh, Let's see. I'm back on my iPhone. Can you All right, that? let's try that. Okay. I'm going to close out the. Uh, yeah, let's do that. This is better. This is solid. All right. All right let me uh, get it where. Right. Oh, boy. Okay. I guess that's what we're going to get right there. Okay. So yeah, this, this will work really well. And, and the last thing, the last thing that we really caught from what you said was the, the 2,500 miles that the other guys took. That was okay. about the last thing that we really got. So if you could pick up from there, that'd be great. All right. Well, uh, Columbus, uh, you know, he went 30, he started at the Canary Islands and he had to go across the open ocean, 3,800 miles. Mm -hmm. But these guys were used to sailing in the North sea and, and, uh, you know, they would sail from Norway over to Scotland when they attacked Scotland. And so sailing on the rough waters was not a big deal to them. And Sinclair actually ran the Faroe Islands. So he would, we know that he went at least that far. Mm -hmm. But they could just island hop all the way over. Basically. Right. And uh, so I'm not saying that he did, but I'm just saying that the possibility of it is is uh, pretty real. Right. And, uh when you start looking at the um, people involved, like James Gunn and uh, Gil Scott Campbell, they were cousins of him. They were all leaders of their clans and all that. Mm -hmm. So that first book talks about that. And it talks about, uh, I had some kind of proprietary Templar information <laughs> that I was sent by a couple of historians in Scotland. And so I included some of that. But it's more of a general book. But I did latch on to the Knights Baronet a little bit. So when I, they called me up to uh, Oak Island for the uh, war room meeting. That was in mm -hmm. 2017. And uh, to talk about that book. Right. And, uh, but Rick had asked, well, do you know if there's any connections between the Knights Baronet of Nova Scotia and the Knights Templar? And I said, well, not specifically, I hadn't looked into that yet, but I can. So I did. And, uh, but I have to tell you before I leave that part of the story is that I was the last person to uh, present in the old war room. Wow. Uh, because uh, they were planning, they had built a new one. They just got it done just about when I got there. It's up around the corner and it has a gate so that the general public can't basically come up and interrupt uh, filming. And, right. mm -hmm. But also the old one was just like a work shed and 
it also didn't have really good air conditioning for all the archives that they had. So they uh, decided to build this new one. So after I got done, uh, they, I, I, I was, we were about to leave the island and I thought, well, I'm going to take another look in there because I probably won't ever be here again. I, little did I know. And uh, so I st- stuck my head in the door and there was a lady in there taking all the art- articles and artifacts off the wall. And she would, she was like photographing a section and then taking everything off and putting it in a box. So when she got to the new war room, um, you know, she could put it back together the right way. Right. So I said, what's going on? She told me and, and she said, she zipped her lips. She said, but it's top secret. <laughs> so I had to kind of set up <laughs> for, um, for almost a year. Cause wow. I didn't want to, you know, the NDA. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. As far as the NDAs go, people might be interested in this. You basically there's three parts to it. One is that you won't tell if you're going to be on the show, which I never know anyway, because I don't know until the week before, just like everybody else watching the previews. <laughs> yeah. One year I got a phone call that it might be within the next three weeks, but, um, but that was it. And then also you can't badmouth them. Well, why on earth would I badmouth any yeah. of them? Because they've taken me up there three years in a row and, right. and been so nice to me. And then, um, Let's see. Then you can't tell anything that they've told you. So if I've come up with something, I can talk about it or put it in my book. But if they show me something or whatever, I have to keep mum till the season's over. And then the NDA ends at the end of the season. And a a for instance of that is uh, Gary. It it was a long four-hour meeting. I had a one-hour presentation that kept me in there for four hours. And Gary handed me, he had it laying on his lap and he handed me that stonemason's finishing chisel because I was in the middle of talking about stonemasons. And yep. uh, so I had to keep quiet about that. So there's other things too. And some, there's a few things that I would never say anything about, but right. um, so that was the first year. So I went back and within a couple of days, I sent Rick a report on, I was kind of astonished to find out that a lot <laughs> of these early the earliest Knights Baronet actually had connections back to the Knights Temper. And one of those was William Alexander, the founder of Nova Scotia and the leader of the Knights Baronet. And he lived on Templar land, which was only uh, seven miles from the old Bannockburn battlefield where the Templars supposedly helped the Scots win that battle. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, I, I found a number of them. So I was again, sending them emails. And again, after a few months, they wrote and said, you know, you've refined your theory so much. You need to put this in a book too, because this is, this is much more refined than your first book. Right. So that was the, the end result of that was Oak Island, 1632. And how I came up with that is that's the year that the, the Knights Baronet settlement was forced out of out of uh, Nova Scotia. And how it all came about was the Pilgrims landed in 1620. That was a, uh, there was a gigantic effort behind that that had gone on for a dozen years or more. People don't realize that. They think just some people jumped on a ship and went, but it was, there were a lot of wealthy people behind that. And one of those people was William Alexander, the same guy that got Nova Scotia. And so, the, the situation was that there originally were going to be two ships and they didn't know they were going to lose so many people to 
scurvy into the winter into battles with natives. So now they were in a precarious situation there. So they wanted to protect them because the French were right up in Nova Scotia. There was a fort up at what's called Port Royal. Yes. Right across yes. from Oak Island on the opposite side. Right. So they wanted to create a buffer there and more or less chase the French all the way up to Quebec. And so uh, the king gave William Alexander that area of Nova Scotia. Well, it included Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, mm -hmm. and a few other places in that area. So it was a pretty big land grant. And he gave them that the next year. That was in 1621. But it was so late in the season that he couldn't effectively get a boat there. So the very next year in 1622, he sent his first boat and it never made it there. It, they got close enough to see Cape Breton, but got blown back up to Newfoundland. So in 1623, he finally got a boat that made it all the way there. Uh, I think, even though history doesn't say this, I think he was on that boat because a couple of years later, uh, King Charles said uh, a place called Nova Scotia uh, surveyed and discovered through the travel and pains of William Alexander. Well, uh -huh. so he, the king is basically saying he traveled there and yes. he surveyed it. Yes. And why he, would he say that if that wasn't the truth? So right. uh, then there's other reasons because of all the of all this uh, ships that he sent, and I counted about 17 the that particular trip is the one that he gave the biggest description or the best most detailed description of almost like he was on the boat so wow. that's what i wonder but anyway that is the same year that uh that legend has it that the foundation and the water well up at new Ross were built and that is the tradition of the alexander family and it's also was the tradition of uh the of several Mi'kmaq uh, people who mm -hmm. talked to Joan Harris, who actually uncovered that foundation when she was gardening in her backyard. Right. So there's two disparate groups. Uh, you know, the Mi'kmaq in in uh, Nova Scotia and the Alexanders, who are all now by this point were stationed down in Virginia. Right. So uh, if you get, you know. Unless they called each other up and said, "What are we going to say?" <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, that's what my new book is about. But I, I'll get to that in a little bit. So I figured out, I got this theory in my brain that it was the uh, Scots in 1632 because I figured, well, that's the beginning. Or yes, that's when they left, but they got there in 1628, and I figured why wouldn't this mystery start in the year that Nova Scotia started or in that time period that Nova Scotia mm -hmm. started? And, but I didn't know what kind of treasure they would be burying or anything like that. But I also had a hint that a ship had sunk near Oak Island. And basically that was just based on all the items that had washed up on shore. Right. Um, so that was the, on my second book, I had a sunken ship on it. Yep. So and that's um, something that really fascinates me too. And I know Jack and I were talking about that earlier is that, that ship, you know, and the, I know you got more to say about that. I'll let you go on, but that's something that really fascinates me a lot is that ship that's up there somewhere. Go ahead. Yeah. Where, where'd you, uh, you had an interesting point. I don't know how you came up with it. At the new year, when they left, they left on March 29th, I believe it was or something yep. like that. 
Yeah. And the new year then started on March 25th. Right. And the legend up there was always that they were told to tear their fort down on New Year's. And I thought, well, why would they? It was a relatively uh, friendly expulsion because they were allowed to take their gold and silver and their weapons with them. But why would the French make them tear down the fort on January 2nd, let's say, and then make them stand out in the cold till March 29th? So uh, I just happened to come across that uh, just accidentally. A lot of stuff I come across is so uh, uh, fortuitous, I think is the word. And uh, so I thought, well, there, that explains the whole legend. Mm -hmm. The legend probably is true. They were told on March 29th, because that's the date that the order is dated, is March 29th, 1632. And that would have been just four days after New Year's, and the legend was shortly after New Year's. So that explained that legend. So that matches up very well. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but the, but the, uh, the issue with all of that is that uh, and I've verified this in a lot of different ways, but it would have been virtually impossible to cross the Atlantic, the North Atlantic in April, which is, they had to leave by the end of March. So, or into April. So I looked at NOAA weather records for three years. I looked at a study that was done in Nova Scotia and I talked to a sea captain who's, uh, he's been a lifelong sea captain up there. And every record that I can find says they would, well, actually, I'll put it the way the captain did. He said they would be heading into hell to try to cross in April. And it, right. it was not just high waves and high winds and and freezing water in the up against the shore, but freezing spray. And that's what would bring them down. That freezing spray that would right. build up on a mm-hmm. six, uh, 17th century boat. And before you knew it, <clears throat> Davy Jones's locker for him. Right. Yeah, I've heard so, other stories talking about that too, how treacherous it is during that time frame. Yep, absolutely. Wow. So I got the idea that they came around the horn because the weather over on the Port Royal side wasn't quite as bad. It was on the leeward side mm-hmm. and it had the mountains and everything to block it. So right. my idea was they came around the horn, saw how bad the weather was and pulled into Mahone Bay, which would be the ultimate bay to pull into. It's the deepest, and I mean by deepest, deepest into the land i don't mean deep in water or you know water depth but right and oak island is the perfect island because it's at the back and before the causeway was there you could pull your ship right behind the island and wait out a storm right and when i was talking to that captain uh captain mckinnon is his name and rick set the meeting up with him and uh he was he was a salty sea dog but boy i'll tell you i had the most fun talking to him we talked for two hours he said, you're probably tired of hearing me. And I said, no, I go for another four hours. A yeah, exactly. For you. Yep. Uh, he said that, that he agreed they wouldn't be able to cross. He agreed that would be the place to go. And uh, he also talked about the fact that if they were going to attack the French, come over and sail all the way across the ocean for, let's say, five or six or more weeks mm-hmm. and try to go up the Bay of Fundy. The Bay of Fundy has the highest tides in the world. And there are I wondered about that. Yeah. About on average, they're about uh, uh, 50 foot. But I guess that, that there's been times when they've been up to to 70 foot. And so uh, they could not come up there without the French seeing them. So the, the he said the best thing they would have been able to or the best thing they would have done is just go overland, go up to New Ross and cut back down to, towards Port Royal and surprise the heck out of the French. 
And I also found a, a snippet somewhere that said that they had actually spied on the French. Uh, so they, you can't spy on the French by sailing your boat into their port. Yeah, so <laughs> no, had, that's not going to work real well. Yeah. So now I had my reasoning of why they would have went to Oak Island, but I didn't know what they took there. And uh, I thought, well, maybe it was just that. Well, I, I was assuming that a boat had sunk, a ship had sunk, and that maybe they had stuff they just couldn't take on the other boats. Mm -hmm. And they had to take the people, so they just buried a cache of valuables or whatever there. Because, first of all, they wouldn't have had any way of knowing that this was uh, uh, anything more than a bump in the road. Because everybody had struggled for 20 or more years to get settlements uh, in New England and now in Nova Scotia. So they didn't know if maybe uh, two months later they'd be sailing back with a armada or something. Right. you know. And so... Why carry a bunch of stuff all the way back when you can leave it here and we'll come back? So um, I went back up in 2018 to talk about that book. And that was the first one that was shown on the show. And that was in the new war room. And uh, uh, that was that precipitated this third book, which is Oak Island Nights, which yep. has the I have it right here. <laughs> I've got the same book right here. Yep. And uh, how that came about was independent of the study of Oak Island, mm -hmm. Doug had, uh, somehow I'd found out about the medallion, but the only photo that existed of it was an old Polaroid of it laying on the floor. So it was almost impossible to make out what it was. And I talked to a few people up there and I finally found out that it was, it had French writing on it and it was dated 1671. <laughs> so, um, I started looking into it and I found out that it was actually a British knighthood medallion, the order of the garter. And that was, that was uh, conceived of in France. So that's why they put the French writing on it, but it had nothing to do with a French honor or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, we started working on the gentleman that found it. And he found it before the treasure trove laws and he did not want to show it to anybody. Right. But Doug and Doug particularly knew his cousin. So uh, Rick and I and Doug went up to New Ross and we met the owners, Tim and Alessandra that own the foundation. Yep. And this yep. cousin came with us and he showed us where they found it when they were kids. They were playing with their Tonka toys. And, uh, he showed us uh, roughly where he found it. And, uh, but he s s made it pretty clear that his cousin was not going to arrive with the, uh, medallion mm. so we uh stopped by on the way back rick took us out to lunch in fact that one photo you have there of rick and i standing uh, oh the one oh the one of you guys stand yeah 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 that's uh where rick took us out to uh let's see <laughs> to have a sandwich there and uh the whole crew and uh the owners of the foundation came with us and we had a really nice talk visit with them and uh so uh, we stopped to buy a little bit of time had gone by and we stopped oh, by and talked to cousin. Yeah. That was in front of that little, it was basically a sub shop, but good food. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so, uh, we stopped back by where this gentleman worked, the cousin. And mm -hmm. we said, you know, is there any way you can get him bring that medallion to the war room? And he said, I don't know. I'll talk to him next week. And I said, well, can't be next week. Cause I'm leaving on Sunday. So if it isn't tomorrow, this was Friday. I said, if it isn't tomorrow, it's never going to be as far right. as my involvement. And 
He said, well, I'll see what I can do. So I thought I was going to get Saturday off because I have to tell you, when they bring you up there, it's a working vacation. They have something like they took me to COGS to the you know College of Geographic Sciences. And we went up to uh, the Nova Scotia archives. And, you know, so you're they want to get your research capabilities out of you while you're there you know so um i thought wow this is going to be a whole day off we're going to go down to the southern shore and see what's down there and at eight at eight in the morning doug called and said he's coming with the medallion he's going to be there at 10 o'clock so we got ready and we scooted over and there's rick on the phone with prometheus explaining to them that this is a big deal this medallion mm -hmm. and their film crew was scattered because they work long hours during the week. Yeah. yeah so and uh, so he says, here, Jim, you talk to him. <laughs> so he handed me his phone and I'm talking to the guy. I'd only ever talked to him one other time. I think it was about my car rental. And uh, <laughs> I'm trying to explain to me, he said, believe me, he said, it would take me probably four hours to get enough people together to get down there. Wow. And I'm not even sure I can. So we're just going to, so that other picture that you have. Uh, yeah. I'll bring that up the, now. Yeah. yeah. So the gentleman came, he was nervous, he was pretty nervous, and uh, I understandably why, because the treasure trove laws are so strict up there. Mm -hmm. They came uh, in 1970, didn't they? Yeah, well, in the 70s, sometime in there. And uh, so uh, we had to get, actually had to get a letter from the Nova Scotia government that they would not confiscate this medallion for him to bring it to us. So right. we did, and uh, I didn't want to put his picture anywhere because you know right. privacy but right. exactly this was shortly after rick said well jim you run the meeting so i said all right well you show tell us how you found the museum or the medallion and show it to us and then i'll tell you who it originally belonged to and how i thought it got to new ross all of that is in my book in the oak island nights and uh so he did and then he la laid it down on this piece of paper because he had it all wrapped in a nice felt inside of a wooden box. I mean, he really relishes this thing. And, and he should, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I took some photos there, and uh, uh, my wife actually took some photos too. And so the photo that's on the front of that book, the Oak Island Knights book, is really the best photo of that medallion that's in existence anywhere. Wow. And uh, so we talked about that, and it's it's not totally independent of the Oak Island story, but it is a, a side story and it's probably not, uh, but, but the rest of the book was what was of great interest was that I found out about this treasure that was stolen in Scotland. And you, yeah. we were talking before. Yeah. This is a fascinating story. This gentleman, he was a member of parliament and uh, he robbed the treasure and the wife of the guy that was the marshal of all of Scotland. Now this marshal, his family was a hereditary position. And so they had amassed a fortune. It was probably the biggest fortune in, in Scotland at the time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he was pretty, he was pretty old and not doing really well. And, uh, whether the, this guy's name was Alexander Strachan, I always call him Al Strachan because there's too many Alexanders in the story. So I always say <laughs> Al Strachan. And he signed some documents that way. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, he, um, whether he actually fell in love with the lady or fell in love with her money, it's hard to say, but he got her money eventually. <laughs> and there were a number of people involved in the robbery. So uh, charges were filed. Well, the, the 
Marshall, his name was Keith, George Keith, he died shortly afterwards. And uh, so Strachan was indicted, as was his wife that by then he had married, mm -hmm. and uh, a couple a couple other gentlemen, or at least one other gentleman and a man who was his uh, guarantor to sh that he would show up in court. Right. And so he sat on this all for two years waiting for trial and it kept getting delayed and it was going to be before the privy council the king mm -hmm. and so uh william alexander was like the head of the privy council so he was delaying these uh trials it was it was scheduled for three different dates uh -huh. all of a sudden in 1625 uh Strachan gets a full pardon and he becomes a full partner with william alexander in nova scotia and mm. becomes a knight baronet of Nova Scotia. Well, what's interesting is in that very first meeting, the people involved were him and William Alexander, of course, mm -hmm. and the other guy that was involved in the robbery, um, uh, Douglas, his last name was Douglas, and the cautioner of, or the guarantor of uh, Strachan appearing in court. Right. So, these people were all tied to the robbery and they were the initial Knights Baronet of Nova Scotia. So they were in cahoots. Yeah. Well, one big happy family. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and then the other one that was in that I couldn't prove he was involved in the robbery at all, but he was like the head of like military intelligence, you might say for the King. And he was the other, the other initial one. So, um, but what had happened, what was interesting about the years of 22 and 23 was that it was a terribly bad time financially for the king. And I, he would actually make loans or, or get loans from people under duress. And he would give them like jewels and things like that, that he would say, well, when I can pay you back, it was basically hawking um, royal items so he could get money. And that's all in the Privy Council minutes and it's in other histories. So, and at the mean, in the meantime, Alexander was crying the blues to just about everybody that he couldn't get enough money together. So that's why they started the Knights Baronet. And you didn't just, normally you would become a knight by doing something in service for the king, usually overseas, like right. in the Crusades or something like that. Mm -hmm. These yep. people just bought their knighthood. They wow. paid a certain fee for it and they got it. Well, that upset a lot of the existing knighthoods, and the king had to agree to never create another knighthood like that. But in the meantime, it was created, and right. it was the source of funding for Nova Scotia. Hmm. So uh, now I had the idea, well, this could be the treasure, because uh, I know for a fact that Strachan spent some of his money on Nova Scotia because he had to pay his fee to become a knight baronet unless they just gave that to him. Right. But he also signed a document uh, that he would finance a boat to go to Nova Scotia. And also, the other person in the meeting, I forgot about this guy, and he's pretty critical, he was the son of the guy that was robbed, William Keith. And he became the new marshal, and yet he didn't, he wasn't trying to have it out with the guy that stole his, his stepmother and his treasure. They made some type of a deal yep. to, to uh, give certain, because this Keith guy owned 30 castles and part of what was stolen was the titles to those castles. Oh, There's wow. a bunch of other stuff. Oh, wow. So, um, so they made a deal with him and 
What's interesting was this foundation up at New Ross, it was torn down. The legend is both with the Alexander family and again with the Mi'kmaq. It was torn down in 1654 by Oliver Cromwell's people. Well, also in 1654, an uh, iron box or a treasure chest was found up in the Orkney Islands that belonged to another Keith, a brother to this William Keith, wow. and a son to the man it was stolen. And they got a bunch of witnesses and they opened it up and uh, in front of the witnesses. And there's a big backstory of who they sent it to. It was involved in this whole story too but the mm -hmm. point is in the exact same year they found the iron box up there it only had a few jewels in it about six but they also tore down the alexander estate up at new ross in the same year and i think cromwell knew about the robbery knew that there was money out there it, he didn't know about oak island but he was trying to figure out what the heck had happened so i know it gets a little complex but so my my idea was that they probably took this over because they're taking a lot of people. There's, There was a potential of up to 2,000 people there when the ships were in port because the two biggest ships were men of war, and they took 400 to 800 people just to run those ships. Plus, right. they were bringing, constantly bringing new, uh, new settlers over. Mm -hmm. Didn't they so, have to bring so many settlers over also when you became a knight? Pardon me? Didn't they say you had to bring so many uh, people oh, yeah. over with like... Yep. <laughs> you read my book. Uh, <laughs> part, of, part of being a knight baronet is you had to supply six men that were, uh, that had skills. They had to be like a stonemason or a, a leather worker or a builder. Because their idea was they're going to build a hundred towns around the coast of Nova Scotia, basically to protect it. And each knight baronet was going to get 16,000 acres for his estate oh. and 14,000 acres to build the town. And they wanted all the towns to be on water, whether it was a river or, or the coastline. They yeah. wanted, you know, because they're trying to protect from other ships, right? particularly French, coming mm -hmm. in. So, uh, so they would have to take, I mean, you have to have a form of money. And uh, I, I put, I have nine reasons in my couple of my books of why, Alexander wanted to be or was going to name himself King of, of Nova Scotia. And it, and they're pretty legitimate reasons written by other people. I'm just copying their words. Right. But um, so after I wrote Oak Island Nights, I went up there again, and that was in 2019, and I was filmed a second time. And that year, uh, it was great because Charles took me down to see Nolan's Cross stones and mm -hmm. uh we drove to one of them through the muck in a four wheel or a four wheeler and then he said you want to walk down to another one i didn't know what i was getting into but it was just marsh and muck down into that second one but i actually saw yeah there you go it's a sepia tone but there's one of them that was the easy one to get to all you had to <laughs> walk through just a little bit of muck to that one but the other one was down down a ways and uh so that was a pretty neat start to that visit and i have to tell you a little anecdote i got a ton of anecdotes about him but in this case we were coming back up and and he had his uh mason's ring masonic ring and i said oh wow that's a nice masonic ring and he showed it to him and he said look at this and he reached in his pocket and he pulled out a knight's templar ring and um 
and I said, oh, you don't wear that. And he told me why he didn't wear it. And, but he said, but it's in my pocket all the time. Wow. So, um, and he was just smiling so big. And I said, boy, you, you must be the happiest man in the world. And he said, I, I hunt for treasure on an island every day of my life. Why wouldn't I do that? <laughs> I know. Exactly. Said, oh, you got a, you got uh, a point there. I, I, I want to say that everybody is just like you see them on the show. They're, nobody's putting on anything. Uh, if if anybody isn't quite like it, it's Gary because he's a much bigger clown. Is he really? Then they let him get away with. I mean, and that's easy to believe too. You see okay. Gary on the show, and he's just you know you can tell he wants to clown around and just you know, but you feel that demeanor from him, and that's. And Rick, Rick is always saying anytime, you know, he says, I look at his face when he's looking at something he just pulled out of the ground. I look at his face rather than the thing. Yeah, you can tell if he thinks it's exciting. Ooh. <laughs> well, one day we were heading over to the island and he was pulling out with his car. We were walking up to our rental. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, are you going to the island too? And he said, oh, I'm going to play Celebrity Walmart. And I said, what is that? And he said, well, I can't, I I'm up here for two or three months at a time and I need stuff. So I run down to the Walmart, but I can't walk down a single aisle without somebody wanting to yeah. take your picture with me. So he said, I started calling it celebrity Walmart. So, <laughs> so that's the kind of way he is. And we spent a lot of nights, uh, sharing a brew. There we go. Now, I was going to say, it looks like there's one right here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Jack Bagley always seemed like to be the hyper one that would really get wound up on something real quick and just go. Yeah. Get ahead of everybody. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Jack is a very smart guy and uh, a joy to be around. And uh, when I would do my uh, talks, he was always jumping ahead in the talk. I'd say, <laughs> I bet you in school you used to look at the back of the book, didn't you? But, uh, but so, so uh, he's very, Jack's very enthusiastic. Gary's very funny. Laird's uh, very laid back laird and charles are a lot alike in that they're both paying attention to everything you know but they don't jump into the conversation right away not right. that they're shy but they're they're one they want to do it in the most professional way i guess you right. say and rick is an absolute gem i mean what he has done for us and there's little stories that that he helped us out in different ways and uh Actually, I'll tell you one of them. So they don't ever let anybody in the war room that isn't part of the presentation or a member of the Oak Island team. Okay. And we didn't find that out till the first year. And my wife was really disappointed because she had been right, you know, taking the same trip with me and reading my books and all that. So um, they told her absolutely not. So she left. And for some reason, we got this stupid big truck. Uh, for a rental we got there at night and i think we took what they gave us or whatever but so she gets in it and she's going to go shopping she's a little bit disappointed and she's just getting the causeway she hears somebody pounding on the side of the truck she stops and it's rick and he said i heard what's going on get in the war room i put my foot down get in the war room <laughs> so she came in and of course the there was like three cameramen and a producer in there at the time and they said they were surprised and she said well rick said i could be here so they said, oh, well, sit back in that corner and don't make any noise. And I said, are you kidding? I've been trying to get her to sit in the corner and not make any noise for years. Everybody got a laugh out of that. But yeah. so she got to watch it and she got to watch a, a couple other ones, too. And uh, that, so that was very nice of him. If it, if it wasn't for him, that wouldn't have happened. 
Right. But um, well, but so is, the, is the war room like we think it is? Like when you're just talking like that, is it? Is it just a normal conversation like we see on TV? Yes, you know, and I'm glad you asked that question because, you know, I've seen where people say it's scripted and all that. I was filmed for 12 hours total over these years, including two hours up at New Ross. And I was never once told what to say, not even one time a hint or why don't you talk about this or anything. Mm -hmm. It was like kind of like you're doing with the show. Hey, Mm -hmm. Jim, you're on the show. Start talking. Same (laughs) way there. And uh, I was another little anecdote because i was told what not to say once because um i think it was the first year in the new war room it was the second year i was there and they told me just pull up on the left hand side you'll see some trucks there and and go in rick will meet you at the door so when i pulled up there were only two trucks and so i expected there wouldn't be too many people in there and rick came out and greeted me and we walked through the door and i said everybody was in there it was packed and i said Wow, you brought the whole fam damnly. And the producer says, Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. We don't want you to cut, cut, can you, cut. Can you just walk through the door again and not say that? But oh, that was it. I, in all the time I've ever been there, they never approached okay. uh, me or, you know, so it is, it, what it is is they just film a tremendous amount of film. Uh, again, in my case, they had 12 hours of film and they've shown uh, over the, uh, five times that they've shown clips of it, they've probably maybe got a half hour out of that right. all. Wow. Uh, but they they said that, and, and I heard Maddie Blake say that on a show too, that they filmed like uh, 10 to 15 times as much film as they ever used. So right. they want to be filming to catch the good moments. Right. But um, so uh, when I got back from that uh, meeting and the uh, and medallion and all that. Uh, I was kind of feeling like I'm done with this. I mean, that's three books and it isn't easy to write a book, believe me. And that isn't easy to get proofs and proofreading and all that done. And then I started wearing on me some of the things that I was finding that I didn't get in the book and were leading me down other paths. And so I wrote another book called Oak Island Endgame. And that was kind of like the icing on the cake of Oak Island Nights. So the way I would explain it was uh, Oak Island Missing Links kind of touched on some of the legends. Oak Island 1632 narrowed it down to the people. Yeah, that's Endgame. That's right. And then uh, Oak Island Nights uh, narrowed it down to the treasure, what I thought was buried there. And so by the time Oak Island Endgame came by, I kind of counted that as the icing on the cake. If it's mm-hmm. if if it was this in the same book as Oak Island Nights, it would fit. And I have to say that I never intended to write any books, let alone this many books. Uh, and I wouldn't mind if they were all in one big book, too. But it mm-hmm. didn't happen that way. It happened right. hierarchically. Um, <clears throat> so I was telling my son that very thing. Yeah, I'll see your mother. Seven books there. Yeah, wow. And uh, I was telling my son, you know, I, I kind of wish that it was all in one book, but at this point, to go back and do that would be kind of silly. And he said, well, why don't you write a historical novel? People love those. And then you can t- try to get all of it into that novel if you can. Mm-hmm. So that's the that's this uh, Oak Island novel. And I just did it for fun. And that was the beginning. I, Oak Island Endgame came out the beginning of last year, but I'd been working th- through the fall. Then 
right afterwards, I wrote Oak Island, the novel, and I'd never written a uh, historical, you know, a, a, a book with quotes in it and all that. So I didn't know how I'd do. And it was just really for fun. But I thought it came out pretty good. So I put that one out. So then I thought, well, for sure I'm done now because I combined most of my story into the novel, even though I used poetic license a lot. And then uh, uh, it was getting towards the end of the year and I was hearing about the Mayflower. That was the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower. And I had remembered that in the Oak Island Endgame that I had referred back to the fact that Nova Scotia was created to protect the Mayflower pilgrims mm -hmm. and that I had known that there were some, uh, particularly Franklin Roosevelt, that descended from Mayflower descendants that were early settlers and searchers. So I thought, well, I'll go back in and explore that. So before I knew it, I had a, another whole book called Oak Island and the Mayflower. And it is so detailed in the family connections and what the most remarkable one, of course, is Franklin Roosevelt, mm -hmm. and uh, his he went up there with that Harry or Henry Bowden, who I think I found enough evidence to prove that he was a cousin, and that they both had descended from uh, Mayflower people. And uh, but I, I found so many people that did, or they moved to Plymouth shortly afterwards, or moved up to Boston, which is just forty miles up the road. Uh, in those early years. So there was quite a contingent. Almost almost everybody that was an early settler or an early searcher was either associated with the Plymouth Colony, associated with the Knights Baronet of Nova Scotia, or associated with the Freemason. Right. That's and, fascinating. They really you know, and some of them were all three, like Roosevelt. Right. Yeah, exactly. He was a grandmaster of uh, Freemasonry. He was associated with the Knights Baronet, and I also found out that one of his forefathers used to own Oak Island uh, as part of a much bigger territory. He may never have even set foot on Oak Island. Right, right, yeah. So, uh, so of course, I wanted to get that book out. And, and part of the reason for the books is that I'm doing a lot of this research for fun, but I don't want all this to get lost. It's, I'm doing it personally for the same reason they told me I should write the first two books you get all this information amassed and I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm the final word. I would never say I have solved the Oak Island mystery, right? But here's a lot of stuff I found. And if somebody comes after me, you know, and I, in fact, I sent them all my books. Uh, I mean, I've sent them all copies of my books when they came out, but I sent mm -hmm. them a package of all the books together with the idea that that would go in their archives. Right. So that, that in the future, if somebody else is picking up the ball or grabbing the baton, they can use these as reference. And and I put right. in there, you know, where I got the information um, so that somebody can say, well, Jim said here, let's go check that out. Mm -hmm. And if they find out something different, that's fine. I'm not I'm not standing on this as the absolute answer, but there's an awful yep. lot of answers in it. Yep. It's kind of like a. I think I heard you say it was like a contagious disease, almost. Yes. Once uh, you get once you get going on it, you just can't you can't get away from it. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, one of the people up there that was encouraging me to write the first two books said, "You have islanditis, and there's no cure." So <laughs> I like to say, uh, "I have islanditis, and the only cure is more cowbell." 
There you go. I like uh, that. Yeah. I don't, I'm not sure that there is a cure because, um, mm. Believe me, I've tried to put this away now. It's been since the fall of 2016 until now. <laughs> and I literally just started writing some new information and sent it off to the Oak Island team, uh, about seven pages of it, um, which my it's a little pet theory that possibly the 90-foot stone was actually what they call a curse tablet. And in Greece and Rome and in the British Isles, they would bury curse tablets with treasure or they would just stick them with their belongings. And it would basically say, if you steal this, you will be cursed. And so it's it's something that has to be fleshed out a little bit. But there are examples of Egyptian uh, tablets carved in stone and other tablets carved in stone that were put in the ground as a curse against whoever stole it. But I have to tell you another thing about the curse, two more things about it. One is that this treasure that I told you was stolen in Scotland, it had mm-hmm. its own curse against it. Oh, really? Be- yeah, because a good share of it, the, this George Keith, the man that was robbed, he had, um, he was married to his first wife. Her name was Margaret. And this, he had this opportunity to take over this abbey. And it was uh, coincidentally called the Deer Abbey. <laughs> but uh you're heavy and you're heavy. <laughs> so he maneuvered things so that he could take it over and get the wealth and get the land and all that mm-hmm. yep. well she was appalled by what he did and told him that he was from now on he was going to be cursed and oh. his his treasure and his life he built and everything was going to be gone well then she apparently passed away i, I didn't find out if she they split or whatever but he named his he married his second wife, who was 30 years younger, who also was named Margaret. But if you think about it, that's exactly what happened. What his yep. first wife said was going to happen is exactly yep. what happened. He lost everything, including, it seems, his sons, because they were involved in the treasure. Yep. And uh, he died right afterwards. So, I mean, that's it, it almost goes back to the other story you told that you have about the robbery of the wealth and taking the wife. It was almost a. Uh parallel there almost to it yeah so so you know you could say well maybe that curse traveled all the way over to uh oak island or maybe when they buried whatever they did they uh put a curse tablet down there and said if you dig this up you're cursed you know because Mm -hmm. it was a habit i mean it's proven historically that people did that so i i don't know that's just uh you know an extra but i do uh my last book is Oak Island and New Ross. And mm-hmm. this book is, you know, every time I write one of them, I think it's the best one I wrote. But by far, I think this is the best one I've written because the second half of the book is a timeline of all of these incidents that I'm talking about that leads all the way up to, actually all the way up to the demise of William Alexander mm-hmm. and, the, the, and the tearing down of the New Ross Foundation in 1654. So all that data is in there for the whole second half of the book. But why I even started writing this book, and I'm going to spill a lot of beans on this book right now, but I was looking at Nolan's Cross, trying to figure it out, you know, like a drawing on the computer. Mm -hmm. Thank you, because that interests me. We were just talking about that the other night, how much I think this Nolan's Cross is involved heavily in this whole story. But go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, you'll be really shocked. Or surprised at this so 
uh, I noticed that everybody kind of points to the stem, the main stem of the cross, and where is that pointing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. Something made me think, why don't I, why don't I see where the cross arm has? You know, like if if you sighted down it like a with a rifle from one right. end to the other, where would that go? Goes right up to the new Ross Foundation. Really? And so I did a I did a very amateurish drawing of it and I sent it to the Oak Island team and actually nobody responded, mm. which isn't uncommon because when you get the closer you get to the season, the less I hear from them. Right. And, I mean right. they clam right up until the season's over because they right. have NDAs and two, you know, and uh, yep. Yep. nobody's immune from them. So uh about a month or so went by and I thought, well, you know, I, I probably didn't really do that as good as I should have. So I went in and did a little bit more detailed drawing and I sent that off. And then I'd been working with this guy named Brian Farrell. Uh, he was writing a book on Nolan Cross. He's a architect. And uh, it was actually a lot of it was over my head. It was about the math of it and right a lot of different things. But he had asked me to give him my opinion, which I did. And I in, in one big way, I really helped him out uh, as the in the way the book began. So I thought, well, he would probably be open to helping me. So I wrote him an email and mm-hmm. he said, yeah, I'll look into that for you. So it wasn't too long before he wrote back and he sent a drawing showing that it went right up to the foundation. So I thought, well, in order to sell wow. this to the Oak Island team, I'm going to have to get the Oak Island team involved. So I wrote them and I didn't have Steve Guptill's email yet but i wrote to the rest of them and i said do you think this is my theory and it would be significant if this went up there because that's where that medallion was found and there's been a lot of legends between the two and steve would be the person to get you that line right because right. gps and everything else mm-hmm. so i uh i told them what my thoughts were well next thing i know steve emails me and says yeah tell me what you want and we'll see what we can figure out so mm-hmm. i told them you know what he what the appropriate plan I figured would be. So he contacted the owners of the foundation and asked them to choose a spot, a GPS coordinate that came close to representing where the foundation was. Right. And uh, so they did send it off to him. He went and did his magic with his uh, big GPS stick and the, and the Nolan's cross. And he kept, he sent me a drawing that almost mirrored. Wow. Um, wow. Uh, Brian Farrell's. So wow. now we know absolutely scientifically that if you look across that cross arm, it goes, it goes up to the New Ross Foundation, which wow. has to be, that has to be not coincidental. No. no. Oh my goodness. And then I thought, well, where does the other end go? What if you follow it in the opposite opposite <laughs> direction? It goes right down to the corner of the swamp where they found the road. Yep. So. Um, and Alessandra is here watching right now. As she was on, I've seen her talking just a few minutes. So oh. <laughs> she's well, here with she knows us. part of that story then. Yeah, she's yeah. The one that sent the, her and Tim sent the uh, mm-hmm. ordinance down to Steve. Yep. So uh, then I thought, well, what? why is the stem the way it is? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I noticed that it comes fairly close to paralleling the lay of the land of, of Nova Scotia. Uh, it's position north to south so then i thought well perhaps they built the stem originally so that people that were on the island would know the basic lay of the land of nova scotia Mm -hmm. and then they put the cross arm on it 
followed the cross arm up the hill to a nice spot, which happened to be New Ross, and built their foundation there. So uh, there's a lot more to the book than that, and and some of the other stuff is just stunning. I don't want to give it all away right now. Yeah, don't do. That. <laughs> uh, uh, there's uh, the very next item is uh, just as stunning, and oh. then while all that was going on, I found uh, I was reading in a book from 1836 about a painting that hung in this particular house in uh, at the time in England, in London, that was a, a painting of William Alexander getting uh, what they called an augmentation to his arms for his involvement in mm. Nova Scotia. That would be his coat of arms. Mm -hmm. And it had Charles I and William Alexander in it. So I wrote that place and they said, yes, it's actually owned by a curator and it's going to be on loan here to us. Wow. And so they were really excited that I was even interested in it. And uh, they told me that around the outside edges, it had all these little vignettes of the early settlement of Nova Scotia. They don't exist anywhere else in the world. This painting is, it's like frozen in time, these wow. uh, vignettes. So they sent me, a, first they sent me a low res and they said, we don't want you to publish this because obviously somebody will steal it off the internet as soon as you do. Yep. But you are welcome to use it for research. So as I was getting research going, and a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Hamels, he's a PhD, and and he was really interested in it. And he was finding little things, and I was finding little things. And so um, I asked him, can I use some of the artwork? If I don't, if I promise not to print the whole painting, mm -hmm. can I use some of the artwork? for the book and they said yes so the front cover of the book is the centerpiece of that painting wow. the back cover is the actual arms that that would have been mm -hmm. william alexander's coat of arms at the time right and then uh inside in black and white i have vignettes of a spot that looks like oak island that has a lot of uh, the activities going on another spot that looks like what the description of the uh, foundation or the castle or estate of mm -hmm. New Ross looked like, mm -hmm. and um, wow. some other interesting snippets or vignettes that I have uh, explanations for. Me and my colleague came up with explanations for them. So the book's got a lot of that in there, and it ties in with other people's research, including Joan Harris, who uh, first found the foundation right uh, she wrote a little book called a castle in nova scotia right and right uh, so it's out of print now and all of the information about her being there all of that's wiped from the internet i searched and searched i went through time machine and everything trying to find it it's all been scrubbed and it appears as though once her and her husband moved away they wanted their name off the record but luckily, she wrote a lot, and one of the people that was helping her, a gentleman by the name of John Noss, he has some Mi'kmaq background, he was the person who told her originally that that was built for the king of Nova Scotia in 1630, in 1623, and that his uh, ancestors had worked not only on building it, but in 1654, they helped Cromwell's men tear it back down. Wow. And uh, 
but he wasn't the only man because two other McMah that she met independently of him told her the same story. So I was able to get a hold of him by email and I just asked him outright, where did you hear this? And he said, my grandfather, when I was a boy, my grandfather decided I was going to be the one to hold the family secrets. So over a three year period, he told me all of this history about wow. the McMah and about the settling of Nova Scotia and all that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so he said, I can only state what he told me. I can't basically verify that the truth behind it all, but this is what he told me. But the fact that two other Mi'kmaq told her the same thing and right. the Alexander family in Virginia has the same thing on a website saying yep. the same thing. So uh, again, it, it's two disparate of groups. Right. Plus there's other history too. Right. To uh, just wipe it, you know, wipe it out and just say, right. well, it's, it's all phony. So, um, so then I knew I had to write this book because I had the painting. I had the, uh, stunning thing about Nolan's cross. I had this other stunning thing in the book. Um, uh, and, uh, I also found some more information about Knights Baronet having their plots of land were right around, uh, Mahone Bay. In fact, a couple of them, it was Mahone Bay and Oak Island. Now, I'm not saying they ever stepped foot on Oak Island, right. mm -hmm. uh, at least not that group, but they were there. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, again, you know, I hate to do it, <laughs> seventh book, but I hate not to let this be, you know, be out there. And if, you know, I've sold a number of copies already, but if nothing else happens but that this gets in the archives of Oak Island, I'm happy because this has got some pretty interesting information in it and uh, certainly stuff that people would want to know. And that's why with all the books, I mean, right. they all kind of stand on their own, but they were written hierarchy, hierarchically. And probably if somebody asked me which one to read first, I'd either say that this latest one, Oak Island and New Ross and or Oak Island Knights, uh, right. because that also has the medallion story in it. And right. that, you know, has the basic theory. Right. But anyway, so I, I got to tell you, it's been a, a really great trip with these guys. And uh, um, another anecdote I'll tell you real quick was that, um, you know, good old Dave, um, he has a favorite word. And so uh, the first year we went up there, we had just met everybody, Marty and Rick and this lady that kind of works in the background and all these. And we were sitting on the old porch of the uh, war room. And here comes Dave walking over and uh, my wife says, well, there's the bleep bleep man. And he said, you're bleep bleep right, except he didn't say bleep bleep. And we all laughed because uh, here it was a company and people he never met in his life and everything. And, and he didn't even care, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, but Dave is Dave. Yes. Yep. And I had some long conversations. He told me a couple little uh, private stories that were kind of cute and everything. And, uh, so I've, I've spent time with Dave. I spent quite a bit with Charles. Charles gave us tours a couple times mm -hmm. there. And actually, we got back from one golf cart tour the first year. He said, you know how to drive a golf cart, don't you? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, take it and go wherever, wherever you want. So really? I went all over the island oh, where man. I could get it to drive. I would love that. I oh, got, my. I got back, and there was a, a <clears throat> Prometheus producer there. And he said, hey, you want to see something that you haven't seen yet? And I said, yeah. And 
He said, so he jumped in the driver's seat and he drove us up to Samuel Ball's lawn. Mm. And he said, now, uh, we are not allowed to get any, I think it was 200 feet, it was either two or 300 feet. He said, we can't get up to the foundation, but you can see it mm -hmm. plain enough. So he said, I'm going to take you in. Oh, it was thick and there as can be. And uh, we saw the walls. We actually had to climb over one of Samuel Ball's wow. walls. He has four of them in there that he built. Mm -hmm. And they don't corral anything. So I think they were possibly just to get the field stone out of the field so he could plant cabbage. Mm -hmm. But uh, we saw the foundation. And he said, now I want to show you something else. And he took me over and here's this depression in the ground and it was about 10 by 10 and the corners were actually squared right off and it was sunk right. down about a foot. And I'll tell you, if I had a shovel, I would have started digging. <laughs> I think we all would have, yeah. He said, we can't touch this. He said, Jack found it walking through the woods here and we can't touch it. We've applied for a permit mm -hmm. to explore it. It took two years before they got that wow. permit because that's how strict it all is and that's and, and during that two years is when they got they brought laird on board mm -hmm. so that they would yep. have not uh you know an on board, uh, uh archaeologist in case they ran into something really right. cool like this now did you ever get a chance to talk to dan blank and chip or fred nolan they all? were the they were the two that so regretfully i never met either one of them and i asked about dan two years in a row and both times they said that he was feeling kind of sickly that day and he didn't want to come out and i'll tell you the right after he died i uh was talking to rick on the phone and uh i said well i just want to offer you my condolences about dan and he said you know he he uh surprised the heck out of us and i said well, what do you mean and he said well we nobody knew he was even sick i mean that kind of sick Mm -hmm. He said it was just a shock to everybody. He took off, I think, to Florida. And the next thing you know, we hear that. He said it was so sad. We don't, didn't get a chance to say goodbye or anything. But uh, I'll tell you the two. Well, Rick's probably called me about a dozen times. But the first time, I was sitting in my Lazy Boy, being lazy. And it, <laughs> and it rang. And I don't usually answer unrecognizable phone yeah, calls. I don't. They're, they're generally somebody wants to sell you insurance on your car or something mm -hmm. and uh but it said michigan and i thought michigan oak island you know because i'd been sending those emails i thought maybe you just better answer this one mm -hmm. and here it was rick he said mr mcquiston this is rick lagina can you talk and i was sitting in a chair and i still fell on the ground <laughs> and i said as any of us would yeah <laughs> yeah so then uh the next time he called was um I was actually up with a garden hose in my gutters, spraying them out up on a ladder. <laughs> and he calls, and I didn't know who it was, and I answered it. And he said, Jim, this is Rick Lagina. Can you talk now? And I you said, You didn't fall off the ladder, did you? I, no, I said, I'm on the top of the ladder with a hose in the gutter, but hold on a second. So yeah. I jumped down, turned the hose Don't hang out. up. Don't hang up. Hang on. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so uh, some of it was uh, talking about coming up and and the theory and mm -hmm. other parts were about potential trips which haven't uh happened yet but ideas and uh in one instance he told me not to talk about this sunken ship in the bay yet because it was just the story was just developing right and what was funny was doug crow had already sent me an email telling me not to and then prometheus called me and told me not to 
And I didn't even know about the ship until the three of them told me not to talk about it. But by talking all ship, what is this? Yeah, I now we got to look into it. I had a pretty good story on that ship just from talking to the three of them. Yeah. So oh again, I kept my mouth shut for a year on that. And mm -hmm. uh, when I got up there in 2019, uh, Rick said, I've got a two hour. Well, actually, it was Doug. It's funny because Doug came to the, uh, they used to call it the Atlantica. Now it's the, Oak Island Resort. Oh yes, mm -hmm. where they yeah. put yeah. us up, and he mm -hmm. came up to the lounge and found us. And he said, "I just want to tell you," he said, uh, "the meeting with this Captain McKinnon went a little rough, and we're not sure we'll be able to use anything. Mm. Uh, but if uh, he and he is a little salty, and he kind of likes to command the conversation. Mm -hmm. So if you get in there uh, with him tomorrow, and you're and you're feeling the." like you're uncomfortable just say well i've only got another five minutes or something and then leave. Right. well it was the exact opposite i got in there with that guy and i didn't want to leave you're right he was so cool he was beyond cool so he told me the story of the ship he found it before the treasure trove laws and uh uh he dove on it, it he didn't actually find it but uh the person that did told him about it and took him there and he dove on it and it was uh he took photos and notes and stuff, and I'm, I, I just got something here to brace my hand a little bit because I think. Well, I'm going to say your head is sitting there having to hold your phone all this time. I feel yeah. just so bad for you. Well, hopefully this is a little steadier. Yeah. So um, he got a hold of the archaeologist, the underwater archaeologist that worked with Mel Fisher on the uh, Atosha, mm -hmm. and he gave him his notes and everything. And the guy said, based on particularly on what they call the trunnions, which hold the cannon to the base of the cannon. Okay, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. And he said those were only mm -hmm. used by the Spanish and the English around 1600. And mm -hmm. so he dated the boat to around 1600 and also uh, that it was either 50-50, either English or Spanish. Mm -hmm. But what Captain McKinnon brought up it was the icing on the cake because he brought up some silverware that had a stag emblem on the handles, a large yes. spoon and a bunch of forks. It had what kind of emblem on it? A stag, like a Highland stag. Okay, stag. okay, yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, the family emblem of the Strackens has been the stag oh. since 1309 that they know of. They actually have a wax mold and a, a wax seal that was put onto a Wow. To some document from thirteen oh nine. I know one of our members, Henry Wood, asked that question that that had they found out anything about the emblem and everything. See, so he'd mm -hmm. heard about that. Well, I'll tell you, I uh, he would. I asked him where it was at, and I think, I mean, I kind of think possibly the Oak Island team wanted me to have this meeting with them to see if I could weasel out of them where it was at. <laughs> yeah, I got out of yeah. Um, but and and he said to me, it was funny. He almost echoed. Uh, Doug Crow from the night before. He said, "I know I talk a little rough and and I talk a lot." And he said, "And I don't think they'll they might not use anything they filmed last night, but I want to get my story told, you know." So, mm -hmm. and I said, oh, "I'm fine with it. Believe me." I'm yeah, sure. yeah, so, go right ahead. Uh, so I said, "Well, where is the boat? Where is the ship?" And he right. said, "Well, I'm not going to tell you." He said, "Treasure hunters don't tell <laughs> where on. the treasure is, or they're not the ones that are going to end up on." Get, oh, get no. He said, if anybody dies on that boat while I'm alive, it's going to be me. 
I said, all right. So he did later send me two film clips they took of him diving, not underwater, but it shows islands in the background and stuff. And mm -hmm. I, and I kind of secretly went through them trying to see if I could determine what island that might be. Right. And he only said it was within sight of Oak Island, not mm -hmm. that it was right up against it or anything. Right, so right. finally, at the end of last year, and I'm not sure what his motive was for it, but he told me where it was. And I, I think he told it to me in confidence. And I think he told it to me with the idea that he doesn't, you know, if something happens to him. Right. He doesn't want it to go unnoticed forever. Right. So I still am respecting his confidence, but I will tell you, it is within sight of Oak Island. It's oh down God. a little bit from there, but it's easily within distance where items could wash from that boat up to Oak Island, especially oh, wow. a big storm, you know, and they get hurricanes and everything. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, but uh, it was so cool about the stag because this is the other big part of my story is that I, I was looking at the see I didn't focus much on the diggings that went on because everybody else and his brother have and there's just so much of that out there I wanted to know what history might have led up to it and then with my Oak Island Endgame and my Oak Island and the Mayflower books mm -hmm. I started focusing on the people that came there that came there afterwards and it turns out that John Strachan, who was from the family of Al Strachan, owned the Nolan Cross lots during the Truro Company dig. Oh, wow. And uh, John Monroe, who had lots there, was a relative of William Alexander's son-in-law. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, oh, I can't remember the other one, but there's a bunch of them. I mean, in these books, there's just a bunch of them that were somehow tied to the to the Knights Baronet history that also settled on Oak Island. And the other thing about it that that this wasn't a secret, but I think I was the only person that or the first person that put two and two together. But uh, it's it was well known that William Alexander Jr led the Scots. He actually brought them over to Nova Scotia and led them until 1632. Mm -hmm. He also, it was well known in Freemasonry circles that he is the first recorded non-operative Mason. His brother, Anthony, was the second and Al Strachan, of all people, was the third. Oh, so yeah. the, the third non-operative recorded Mason in history was Al Strachan who stole the treasure. And the first was William Alexander Jr., who led the Scots in Nova Scotia. Wow. So I looked into the first seven. I found this in the book called The History of Edinburgh Lodge Number 1. They call it St. Mary's Chapel. Mm -hmm. And it had not only uh, all that, but it had the story about Strachan still in the treasure. It had the most complete list of the treasure. And I found the list in two other books. One was... <clears throat> Privy Council records, and one was the court case. Yeah, I was going to ask about that too. That you know, if we had any idea what was what this treasure consisted of. Yes, and it's in the, it's in the, uh, a number of my books, probably three of them anyway. And uh, also, what's in there is the actual document when these men were initiated as the first non-operative Masons. It was mm -hmm. July third, uh, sixteen thirty-four. And what I think was going on there was when 
when they had when they got kicked out, all these Knights Baronet lost their investment and they lost their literally their American dream. Nice. And so William Alexander came under tremendous pressure to pay people back or to do something about getting Nova Scotia back. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it wasn't up to him because King Charles I had made the deal with the French king to give it back. So it wasn't up to Alexander. So I was conjecturing that maybe he, his second son, Anthony, was the master of public works. So he oversaw all the guilds, stonemasons mm-hmm. and any kind of building guild right. oversaw them. So I thought, well, maybe William Alexander's idea was if I can't get my Knights Baronet anymore, maybe I could get all these stonemasons to somehow back me. And uh, so the first seven non-operatives that were initiated over the first five or six years were all associated either with the Knights Baronet or specifically with William Alexander. So it can almost be said that the Freemasons began out of Nova Scotia or because of Nova Scotia. And uh, it extended even further than that because one of the most famous early Masons was Robert Moray. He was the son and the grandson of Knights Baronet of Nova Scotia. And his partner who founded the uh, uh, Royal Society Mm-hmm. Uh, George Mackenzie, he was a knight baronet of Nova Scotia, and he passed his knighthood on down to his son. So even these two really famous Freemasons from the very beginning who started the Royal Society, both also were tied in with the knights baronet. Yep. So it's it's a quite a web, and it, <laughs> it is. It, it seems you know when you're hearing it all at once, if you've not read any of my books, you know it's still it could be a little it. overwhelming. Mm-hmm. But I put in all the data that I where I found it, what book I found it in. I generally try to get a couple of confirmations. Like for instance, when I read that about William Alexander Jr. and Anthony and Al Strachan becoming the first three non-operative Masons, right. I thought, well, I'm going to see what the Masons have to say about that. Well, I found about six uh, websites or books, Freemasonry websites or books that said the same thing. Mm-hmm. So then I felt confident in publishing it you know because i don't want to put i mean if i put something out there that there's i'm the only source or i only have a singular source i will always uh have a caveat like it may have happened or probably happened or most likely happened or whatever Mm -hmm. but if i have two or three references reliable our sources i'm gonna put it in there as this is fact now absolutely you know right so um and that was something that one of the one of the members had asked about that Tom Burns asked that, and he said, when making assumptions to connect the dots between events to support your conclusions, what steps do you take to avoid confirmation bias? So that was kind of yep. Yeah, and uh, he's not the only one that mentioned that because on one of the shows, Marty said that in the war room that mm-hmm. people that have a theory tend to look for things that support the theory. Mm-hmm. And my answer to that is take away half of my support. And you still got a heck of a theory. I mean, exactly. it, there's just so much. It's just, it's still, you know, mm-hmm. six nonfiction books and one fiction book mm-hmm. right now, and I'm not making it up. So uh, it's it's a unique theory, although I have to say, uh, Court Lindahl, who... Uh, yep, I've talked to Court. Yeah. yeah. Court Lindahl 
Steve Sora, who's written a lot on the Knights Templar, um, uh, Joan Harris, who wrote the book Castle in Nova Scotia, and uh, uh, Reginald Harris, who wrote the, what they count as the first book on the Oak Island Treasure, all indicated that, um, oh, and Mark Finman, one of the best authors out there, they all indicated that William Alexander probably had something to do with the Oak Island mystery. Mm -hmm. So, and they all wrote all that before I ever wrote any of mine, although I never found it till after I started mine. <laughs> and then when I was doing research, I'm like, Oh my God, look what court wrote on this or look what. So I actually got, got the opportunity or the pleasure to <clears throat> uh, email with both court and with Mark Finnan mm -hmm. and also with John Noss. Uh, Joan Harris is gone now, so obviously I couldn't right. mail with her. Yep. Yep. But so I have firsthand quotes from some of these people and, wow. and knowledge that that they gave me, and they were certainly stepping stones for my theory. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I don't say that my theory is the absolute solution, but there's too much that happened from yeah. 1623 up to 1632, and and this is a nice little kicker is that. Uh, Gilbert Hedden, who owned the island in the right. 30s, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, he built the Hedden Shaft. And, right, right. right. Uh, he said he wrote Franklin Roosevelt to say that he thought the money pit was built between about 1635. Wow. And then in 1967, he wrote another gentleman a letter, which I found online, where she said he guessed 1630. Well, oh halfway between 1630 and 1635 is 1632 and a half which would be the summer of well yeah the early the late spring let's put it of 1632 right. which is exactly when my guys were there mm -hmm. and uh, if they were there that's wow. when they were there and wow. also i was tickled that uh, last year they pulled uh, a chunk of axe cut wood out of the money put area that carbon dated to as old as 1626 mm -hmm. ian spooner dr ian spooner has said <clears> that <throat> a lot of work went on in the swamp in the 1600s mm -hmm. um so there's been a lot the 1600s been thrown around a lot and every time mm -hmm. i hear like carmen leg uh who's here by the way he's watching too <laughs> 1600s or 17th century or something i'm like ah, yeah that's it you know? yeah speaking of carmen i have to give him some credit here because um, I uh, corresponded with him quite a bit on this last book. And after I sent him some of the more serious chapters, he said, your book's going to shock a lot of people. <laughs> and uh, which I thought, boy, what better, what better uh, <laughs> could you give me? What better? And then yeah. uh, Craig wrote back because I, I had sent them all. Uh, well, I sent them all the entire book, but in the case mm -hmm. of Carmen, I had just sent him in the beginning, just the specific right. mm -hmm. information. But um, then Craig wrote back to say, I'm just always amazed at how much information you're, you're able to dig up, you know, but I just yeah. rely on documents, number one, and then I rely on motives. Like the main motive for almost everybody through history, particularly in those days, was survival, number one. And then the people that wanted to be the ones that survived the best, which meant greed, you know, right. so mm -hmm. survival and greed were, you know, the main motivations. And uh, sometimes it was wrapped in religion and sometimes that was sincere, you know, the religious part of it. But right. 
Um, so I look at those types of motives. What, what would they have wanted? Why would they have done this? Why would they have done that? Mm -hmm. And then as far as science goes, the weather reports were all scientific. The carbon dating is scientific. The, now the GPS coordinates from Nolan's cross up to Ross are scientific. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I try to rely on the science wherever I can, but uh, it's principally the documents and the historical timeline that surrounds them. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you that I was interested in all this, not so much Oak Island, although I've read the original when I was 14 years old. I think we were all read the original. <laughs> and uh, I went up in 2010 and I was going up for the for some Highland games and Celtic music up there. But mm-hmm. I tried to I asked questions about going down to Oak Island and they told me I couldn't. And that was the year that was actually the very month that uh, the Laginas and, and Craig Tester were getting their first treasure trove license. Oh, wow. And I was just told flat out, you will not get on that island. They won't yep. let you on it. Wow. But um, but beyond <laughs> that, I, because of my own family's history, which is basically Scottish, I had been studying Scottish history and Scottish clans for decades, literally. And in 2014, I was given an honorary fellowship with the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland. Wow! Yep. Now they've been around since 1780, and it's a a small group of it's about 3,000 people or mm-hmm. less, and they are f- affiliated with the <clears throat> the National Museum of Scotland and the National Records of Scotland. So wow. I've gotten help from all three of those places, uh, really great help. And if one couldn't find it for me, they'd say, "Well, why don't you email so and so over at the." records they might know you know that kind of thing mm-hmm. and then uh it's also because uh basically you're called uh, uh your title after your name is fsa scott which means I saw, it's on your book yeah yeah so when i would write like the british museum mm-hmm. it opened the door for me and i corresponded with them a lot on that medallion because they got a twin of it over there in the british museum and that was one of the trips we talked about was going over to the British Museum and if we could get this gentleman in New Ross to loan it to us, we'd take it over there and put the two side by yeah, side. Yeah, match them up. Yeah. Measure them, weigh them, everything we could do. There were supposed to be three of those yeah. and one was melted off or something I, yeah. I read. It was given to the King of uh, Sweden and it was in a collection into the uh, 1900s, sometime in the 1900s and a whole slew of stuff was stolen and melted down. But luckily, they had taken plenty of photographs of it. So I actually, in Oak Island Nights, they have photos of all three of them side by side, and they're all identical. Wow. Um, so um, uh, I just try to stick to whatever documents that I can find. And, and you know, it's kind of like that, what is it, seven degrees of separation or whatever that you know, I'm probably related to both of you guys somehow if you go back far enough. <laughs> yeah. But when you when you when it's so specific to uh to uh the history surrounding uh the beginnings of Nova Scotia and the ownership of Oak Island and all of that, it has to mean something. And like I said, throw away half of my research and still the other half still means still quite a bit. And yep. You still have to justify what court wrote or what Steve Sora wrote or what Mark Finn right. wrote or, you know, all these other people, you know, they're, they're, uh, they didn't just make up something that I also made up, <laughs> you right. know, we're, 
we're yeah. sourcing some of the same material and right. and looking for the same ideas. So right. that's how I've that's how I've went about it. And even like I can't imagine writing another book, but but you likely uh, will. <laughs> but you know. If, if the I research, up, I mean, if more answers start coming, if more stuff happens, you you have to. You, right. you have and, to. and already, I think I told you about the cursed habit, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so if my nature is I get up kind of early in the morning, I come up to my office here and look out into the woods and I start doing research for something to do. And it's particularly because of COVID, of course. That's why I got three books out last year, because what else am I going to do? And even the one I got out this year, I wrote it in January and February. And that even made it tougher because we got, you know, you know where I live and we've got winter weather up here. Yeah. So um, we're all three winter weather. We're all yeah. on the road. Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> you start getting it. And a lot of it starts out again with emails to what I call the team, mm -hmm. uh, which would be Doug and Doug and Rick and principally Doug, Rick, Charles and Craig, and then uh, one or two uh, Prometheus people uh, mm -hmm. because they are, they want to know what I am finding out right. too, so they can make their plans or whatever. And uh, so um, I'll write, write it and I'll write something else. And, you know, a week or two later, I'll go, Oh my God, look at all this. I got, you know, look at how long all this is. I better put it in a, at least a text document so I don't lose it. Exactly. Pretty soon I start throwing it into a page making document. Mm. And next thing you know, I got a book. So, <laughs> uh, well, that's a, that's what somebody had mentioned early on when you were talking about your, your mailing list, when you come up with some stuff and you email this out to your mailing list and somebody had mentioned, I forget it was Tom or somebody said, how do I get on this mailing list? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I've actually thought about, expanding the list and or uh doing like a newsletter you know and yeah well, that'd be great yeah. i want to be on that newsletter oh, right? I, 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 <laughs> def, both of us would be. because when you look at the books uh, they're actually uh if you, let's subtract out the the historical fiction there are six books left and it's been mm -hmm. six years of of uh, of involvement so it's basically like a yearly journal Mm -hmm. You know, like a lot of yep. associations put out a yearly journal. And it's kind of like my version of a yearly <clears throat> journal. I yep. never intended it that way. But uh, <laughs> the one thing I don't want to do is start something that I not necessarily fail at, but I get bored with or give up on and then upset a lot of people. So I guess that's yep. probably the biggest reason I don't start doing that. But uh, uh, and then you always got to be uh, careful that you don't spill beans that you're not supposed to. Exactly. Um yeah. You know, and uh, uh, I don't think, you know, I mean, I'd have to really tell some serious tale out of school, you know, for them to get upset with me, I'm sure, because they've right. been supporting me so well. But yeah. um, I did get to hold that chisel, like I told you. And one day I was leaving the island and Rick said, here, will you take this up to Carmen Leg? And it was that thing that looked like a hinge. It was like oh, yeah. uh, 18 inches long, maybe. And. It, yeah, it kind of looked like about like one of those flat crowbars. It's the closest thing I could equate mm -hmm. it to. Yep. And because I, uh, I told him I was going up to New Ross to see the the uh, thing up there. And so I got there and Carmen wasn't there. And the lady behind the desk said, well, I'll take it. And I said, well, 
I was so nervous because I mean, I who knows what this thing is, you know? Yeah. The the, the one thing that Rick always talks about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the one so thing. Yep. I said, well, I can't let anything happen to this. They entrusted me with it, and she said, I'll put it directly in my safe. So we walked around. They had a little store there, a little souvenir shop at the Ross Farm. And when I came back by, it was still in there. So I said, now you are going to put that in your safe, right? And she said, no, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It'll go in the safe, you know. So I never heard that it came up missing. So it must be, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was just looking at Car Carmen said, shocked indeed when you were talking about some of the things that you were had in that that you had sent to him he said shocked indeed yeah that was uh um one of the comments that he made in here i was just catching some of that but uh oh cool oh my goodness yeah he was uh he said uh there's something else. he said um uh, something oh the research that jim has has uncovered cannot be dismissed in any fashion that was carmen that said that wow. so thank you carmen appreciate your chiming well, in i want to thank them too but it, uh I, I agree with them whether I wrote the book or not. I'd agree with them because <laughs> it is some of it's pretty darn stunning. And mm -hmm. while it doesn't prove exactly what's in the bottom of the money pit or anything like that, it right. sure proves the Alexander presence right. at New Ross and in that general vicinity. And yeah. a lot of people probably know, but if you leave Oak Island and take the first river, uh, I guess it would be west. That takes you right up the mountain to New Ross. And mm -hmm. so the road, the modern highway, follows the river, too. Yep. But, of course, back then they didn't have that. So right. they would either – I was told by someone that it actually was navigable back in the day, but that because of gold mining and other things that happened with it, that it, it changed its nature to where it's kind of hard to even get a canoe down it. But regardless, either mm -hmm. way, you would have something to follow. Like mm -hmm. if he said, hey, I want you to build me a state up on that mountain somewhere you're not going to go in a direction where there's no nothing showing you where it's at so they followed right. the river up right at the top mm -hmm. they built this estate and uh so uh i i just have to i know we're probably going to close on time here pretty soon yeah we got about 18 minutes left yep i just want to say that every single person up there that i've ever dealt with have just been gems and um even to, to the point of Mark Finnan emailed with me and John Noss emailed with me and Court emailed with me. And then people I met in person up there, mm -hmm. uh, people are genuinely interested in this. They're they're They themselves are a wealth of knowledge. Their, right. their mind is just packed with the things that they've discovered, mm -hmm. but they also want to know what you've discovered. And uh, mm -hmm. there's not a lot of, I wouldn't say there's competition in, in the, you know, people aren't like, well, I'm not going to say that because, you know, that'll agree with him or whatever. And uh, uh, I would, again, I would never say that it's solved. Uh, right. But I think that there's such a great amount of history, especially with this last book, mm -hmm. that, as Carmen said, you can't ignore it. Uh, you know, it may not explain it 100%, but you absolutely can't ignore what's going on here. So, right. Um, the guy that owns the painting and the curator that found it for me invited me over to London to wow. uh, see it, but they didn't say they'd pay my way. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that might be down the road a little bit. So you need to sell a few more books. So everybody, you know, help yeah. them out here. Uh, so we can get are, are you amazed from when you first started really looking into this, when you go back that many years to where you are now, 
how much you found out how much people really didn't know yeah yes and and it's more like putting the pieces of a puzzle together that uh you can't really tell if they fit in the beginning you're kind of jamming them together and then pretty mm-hmm. soon they start literally falling into place but yep. uh the the intent honestly was never <clears throat> to write any book it, it was only to have fun exploring this and of course i was thrilled that i was uh dealing with the oak island team mm-hmm. uh you know in the beginning it was uh only a few of them, but eventually it right. stretched out to everybody. And again, <laughs> other than Fred and Dan, I met everyone else and I met Dan Hensky too. And he, that guy's brilliant. I want to tell you, he knows so much and we've the, heard he's not a big talker, mm-hmm. you know, but if you get him alone on the porch of the interpretive center and, uh, and get him talking, you're going to find out stuff. And uh, so everybody was just, they're just all peaches. I can't say enough about them. And uh, I, I have some words on the um, interpretive center wall. Yeah. Uh, in 2018, that was my second trip there. We walked in and Rick was in there and he said, I need to, well, we make them small talk. And he gave me a t-shirt and uh, a chunk of uh, Oak Island. Actually, it's right here. It's uh, from their, core drilling they <coughs> they hit bedrock they bring it up and it brings a little chunk of bedrock oh, that's, neat. That. that's awesome and uh he said now i need a quote from you and i'm thinking a quote like i was in the print business and you you know you're bidding on something and mm-hmm. i was thinking did you want me to write something for you and you want a price and i said i'm not sure what you mean what do you want a quote on and he said i want a quote to put right up on the wall right there and I'm like, oh, my God. So I said, well, I can't give you something now because it'll probably be stupid. So let me think about it. And uh, I'll uh, email you in a few days. So I came up into my office and quiet in the morning. And I started thinking about what it's Oak Island about and everything. And I realized that it wasn't so much about who buried the treasure and what tool was used to dig this hole and mm-hmm. all that stuff it was about um people uh living their youth over again uh right. looking for the tr- you know reading the count of monte cristo which was about a treasure on an island or a treasure yes. island or <clears throat> you know and i thought you know basically it's allowing us to be kids again mm-hmm. uh but in a big way with big equipment and yeah. big research and all that so I wrote, uh, and I hope I can parap- I can quote myself correctly, but uh, Oak Island is not so much a mystery to be solved as it is a chance to experience the unapologetic fascination of youth again. Yep, absolutely, and that's so true. Yep, and, and, I, just, I, and the Reader's Digest article just does that even more. Oh yeah, you read that article. Yep. You know, I put that with all my. Uh, Alexander Dumas and Jack London and all those books. I, I confiscated that particular issue of Reader's Digest. And I probably had it with those books for a few years. Yep. Uh, but uh, one day that Rick called, you know, and we were just chatting and I said, you know, what always appealed to me about it was uh, it's just like I called up my buddies and said, hey, get your pickup truck and your chainsaw and tell Billy to get the backhoe. We're going up there and we're going to figure this damn thing out. 
And he said, that's exactly what it is for us. <laughs> you know, it's the boys with the toys, you know, but yep. they got the money to have them. And they're exactly. And the other thing that I realized, uh, and actually I read this somewhere, but people are uh, drawn to or fascinated by a mystery that appears to be almost ready to be solved. Right. And that's one of the reasons they like to watch ball games because they want to, you know, find out who won or the reason they read mystery novels, they want to find out who done it right? and all that. And it's just something in the human psyche that mm -hmm. uh, it, it probably, probably because most of the rest of the life of life is inexplicable. Most of the time you can't, <laughs> you know, like COVID, where did that come from? You know, and yes. all that. And uh, so if you can get your hands on a book or some idea or something that within a few hours, you'll have the answer. Mm -hmm. It just satisfies something in you, you know, and Absolutely. this is, you know, one of the biggest, if not the biggest treasure hunt in history, certainly the longest one. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and it's, uh, it's on an Island. Like, like, uh, Charles said, you know, it's a treasure on an Island who wouldn't want to be trying to figure it out and be involved mm -hmm. and all that. So anyway, I'm just so lucky. I just count, my blessings all the time about this and uh um, i don't mind talking about it obviously <laughs> and i don't do that just to sell we enjoy you doing it yeah Although, absolutely you know buy my books buy my books but that's that's why i, do it. I like to talk about it and talk to yeah. other people that are interested about it and i'll be like we live down on a somewhat lonely beach road there's only a few of us that live here year round but you know, looky loser coming by looking at the cottages and the lake and whatever, and they'll see me and they'll stop and they'll say, Don't I know you from somewhere? Oh, are you that guy that's involved with Oak Island? You know, mm -hmm. and uh, it's not like it is with Rick. I mean, I went a, into a store with Rick and my guy, oh, they, they had him sign and everything that anybody could grab and every magic mm -hmm. marker they could find. Nobody asked me for my autograph that day, but he sure signed a bunch of them. But uh, oh, I'll tell you another little anecdote. Just to All right. what the type of guy he is. I know we. Uh, I know you're trying to keep it down to two hours. No, no, it's okay. Go ahead. Uh, Go ahead. So here's Doug and him and I riding in a pickup truck up to New Ross, and mm -hmm. uh, you know we had an appointment with the people up there, and uh, uh, but we stopped at this um, Ace Hardware. This guy had pulled up with a panel truck, and he had this big, uh, like a. It was like a storm door mm -hmm. and it was in big wraps, you know, with the uh, cellophane on it and the wood mm -hmm. around it and everything protected. And we're, and we're like, how the heck is he going to get that off that truck himself? Mm -hmm. So uh, Doug rolled right in there and we, we jumped out. I was sitting in the middle, so I didn't really, I mean, it was them that did it, but Rick's right over there telling the guy, we're going to help you. Hold on, hold on. We're going to help you. <laughs> so uh, the three of us helped that other guy and we lifted that thing right down and carried it right over to the store where it belonged and then right. basically we got in our truck and left again and that, i'm like you know that just another. seems like the kind of guy rick is you really do and you know it, it's it's like i said this before on the show but but when you we there was that drilling down episode that was about it was with um dave blankenship talking about dan blankenship and dave was talking about the fact that when he goes out to in the public or whatever and people say you know, see him and they recognize him, obviously. And they say, I know you. And he said, you don't know me. You don't yeah. know me. But And he said that in a nice way. He was just being, you know, himself. 
but what he meant by that was that we want, or what they meant by that was that when we watch these guys on show day or week after week and season after season, we do get to feel like we know them. Yes. And, and it's like, Rick, you, I feel that from him, what you've said and what many of my other guests that I've had on have said, they've all agreed with exactly what, what you just said, that he, that's who he is, who you see on the TV show is who he is. And I get that same sense from him. And I get the same sense from almost the whole crew. Oh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. what what you see is what you get. Yep. I, guess I would say with every though. one of them, every one of them that I've met so far are exactly yep. what you see, what you get. And it's also quite the an interesting feeling that when you, like, you know, you see a movie star or a, or a, a singer or something and you run into them in an airport or whatever and it's like really fascinating or whatever mm -hmm. but when you've been watching these guys on tv for a few years and then the next thing you know you're standing next to them and you're surrounded by them and it's <laughs> like real you don't even know which way to look and what to say and what to do you know yeah, but they exactly. make you feel so comfortable they yep. absolutely just embrace you physically embrace you you know and uh, i uh, another quick anecdote was that um well, two of them, one about Rick was I was leaving the island one day and we had been talking for a long time and had a big meeting and all that. And then um, he goes over to his pickup and gets a chainsaw out of his pickup truck. Now, Rick's hands are dirty. His nails are cracked. He's I saw him one time come out of the swamp. He was <clears> so <throat> muddy that he had to ride on the tailgate of the truck. And I, that reminded me of my old uh, motorcycle you know, cross-country motorcycle riding and everything, and he'd be so dirty, he had to take your clothes off outside. Well, um, he gets that chainsaw out, and I said, what are you doing now? And he said, I've got to go cut new tour pass because we got dynamite charges planted up there. And uh, I, my thought to myself was, you are the star. Go sit in a chair and sign autographs and let some <laughs> flunky... Um, yeah do it but then he left he walked away and this one lady that i told you it's kind of like a the mother of everybody up there mm -hmm, mm -hmm. she said that man is here seven days a week working from dawn to dusk he is so dedicated to i can only to this island you know so yep. uh it's just a wonderful thing to see it, 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 you know people tell me boy you have passion like my son says god i wish i had half your passion for something mm -hmm. like this you know and whatever but i don't hold a candle to rick obviously i don't i if i lived up there they'd probably have to kick me off the yeah i'm us. the same way i think all of us all the members that are watching right now are feel, feeling the same way they'd have to drag me off that island if i work there yeah it is it is cool and you know some people think it has a you know some negativity to it and and there may be some i mean i had my own little curse of oak island happen when i I was supposed to be there for a meeting and I lost my truck keys and it took hours to find them. Luckily, I, it, I still made the meeting on time, but the uh, car rental wanted $750 to come down there and pop the door open and give me a new key. Oof. So I called a uh, independent locksmith and he said, oh, heck, I don't need that. I mean, I'll do it for a hundred bucks. He said, but I'm, I'm driving that way right now, but it's going to take me an hour to get there. So I'm setting on pins and needles like, how am I going to get over to the island for my meeting? And mm -hmm. I don't want to look like a dang fool. And then here walks the uh, the night manager with one of the maids because they had tore apart our room. They went through all the garbage that oh, was wow. picked up from the night before. And here he had found him by the back door because you know I'd been at the lounge, 
So he found him at the back door and he just threw him on his desk and locked his door and went home for the night. He didn't get there till like a half hour before the meeting, opened up his door, found the keys and went to take wow. them up to the front desk for fine, you know, yeah, for, for a lost yeah. and found. Right. And they said, oh, my God, we know who they belong to. They ran them back to us. <laughs> we ran out of that room, jumped in that truck and tore across the, you know, it isn't very far away, but we tore over there and slowed down across the causeway and right, right. meeting on time. But, yeah, uh, you don't want to go across the causeway at 60. That's not good, yeah. And all no. I could think of is, is this the curse? Is this the curse? <laughs> I mean, why? I never, I don't know if I've ever lost my keys in yep. my life being anywhere, but I did just before my big Oak Island meeting. So man, oh, anyway, man. but on the other hand, it's a big operation. And so a lot, a lot of things go wrong with a lot of big operations mm -hmm. and but the but they don't usually have cameras on yeah exactly three yep. or four or five cameras mm -hmm. filming a whole breaking mm -hmm. or whatever so right anyway yeah. i was just going to say that one of the things that uh you know you mentioned earlier was about the history and uh and and you have amassed so much you've dragged so much of this history into it but that's the important thing, you know, and I've said this before on, on our, on my show here, but, you know, talking about the fact that, you know, would do, would we love for them to find, you know, a big giant treasure or religious artifacts, treasure or all this stuff? Yes, we all would, but it's that story. It's that who, what, like Rick says, who, what, why, when, and where that I think right there is the thing that fascinates so many of us. And we want answers too. We want to get to the bottom of this because I want to know just like Rick does and you and, and everybody else wants to know what's the answer to who's been there and what were they doing underground on there? And, and uh, not just Oak Island, but now because of talking to you and Alessandra and all these and Carmen and everybody else, I want to know about all the stuff about Oak Island, New Ross, Nova Scotia, you know, all this stuff has just fascinated me. I'm not a Canadian. I'm an American, obviously, but I still want to know because now the story has become part of my life and I want an answer to it. And it's become other countries too. Oh, yeah. At the same time. Mm -hmm. and United the, States, Britain, France, Scotland. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the eye openers for me was how critical Nova Scotia was to the founding of the colonies because mm -hmm. it was the first colony you came to. Exactly. And, and as a matter of fact, they wanted part, some of them up there wanted to become part of the United States when they right. split up with Canada, but they got mm -hmm. voted down. But yep. there were a lot of uh, American, what we would call today, Americans were living up there and there still mm -hmm. are today. And uh, so I never realized that it was so significant to the history of the whole colony. And uh, right. so that was a big eye opener for me. I mean, when I first went up there, I went up for the music and uh, we did the Cayley trail. They call up around Cape Breton. The music's just incredible. That's where mm -hmm. Natalie McMaster, the one of the best fiddlers that ever lived was from there. And, wow. uh, you know, so that was the main reason I was there, but I had the secondary reason of Oak Island, but that got shot down right away. They told mm -hmm. me to never get on there, but, and they didn't know, but I did. Ha. <laughs> I've been on the Island 10 days now. So who's counting, but, uh, um, if, I, if it wasn't for COVID, I probably would have went up again this year. But oh yeah, that just set everybody back. It's set. But you don't get really any warning on that, do you? That they want you to come up. Uh, you know, it's two or three months ahead. They'll hmm. ask if I'm willing to, and then you got to make all the uh, arrangements. So that's another thing people don't realize is 
there's a lot of logistics behind everything. Like, especially if in a year where they have a lot of theorists, every one of those theorists, they make flight plans for them. You know, different people pay for different things, you know, and right. I paid for different things in the past <laughs> or whatever. They pick it up. It depends on the circumstances, but they still make the flight plans. They make your car rental plans. They make your, where you're going to stay. Uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, all the, all the legal documents you have to sign and all that. And they have to do that for every single theorist, but they also have to do it for every third party that comes on the Island. If they bring a drill rig in, yep. they got to make sure the insurances are correct. All of that. And uh, originally, before they got Scott Barlow, this lady that I keep mentioning, uh, but I won't say her name, mm-hmm. is uh, she was doing a lot of that coordinating with the third party wow. equipment stuff. And I think she just got overwhelmed with because the tour tours, you know, they handled the tours, too. And those are mm-hmm. crazy. They're like a Jimmy Buffett concert. They oh, man, it is. That's five minutes. They're all gone for the whole yeah. summer. So <laughs> they brought Scott on because of the. Uh, his knowledge of heavy equipment and uh, to, to take some of that load off. And uh, they share, well, Scott uh, shares with a, a trailer office with, a, well, I'm not sure if it's a trailer office, but it's an office, office with Laird. And Laird, you know, he's, if you think, well, he's just there whenever they need him, but he's not. He's there all the time and he's got a, you know, computer set up and he's logging his database and stuff and researching stuff. You know, it's, it's a steady work for him. Right. They may only call him out in the field once in a while, but it's steady work for him. And it's steady work for Gary in the months that he's there. Right. Um, you know, because they don't, they're not buying people vacations. <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're buying people's expertise. Right. Were you, were you surprised that they brought in more archaeologists this past season? Yes, I was. And, you know, I wondered how Laird, what Laird thought about that. But, you know, two heads are always better than one. And when you look at the size of that road, you can't imagine Laird out there with a trial clearing that, you know, anybody. Right. right. I, I still can't even imagine that those three or four people they have I know. are clearing, clearing that. And that road, I think, shows more than anything how much work goes on behind the scenes that never makes the show. Yep. But the same thing's true with Gary. You know, he doesn't make a find every single time he starts. He's right. he might uh, detect for an hour or something, and uh, and the same way with uh, the spoils piles. You know, and, and on that train hosing them down. You know, they they and the cameramen are sitting right there. They use drones uh, up in the air, and they have cameramen on the ground, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, they're just filming and filming and filming, hoping something happens here pretty quick, you know, right. type of a thing, and I have to tell you, we went up to New Ross, and we had like three false starts, because uh, it's right near the road, and a semi went by, <laughs> and the, it was picked up on all their mics. The, yep. um, it was, you know, and they, they'd say, stop, stop, you gotta walk back up the hill again. <laughs> we're like, come on, we walk up that hill three times, you know. But uh, it was worth it, believe me. Uh, it was oh, yeah. a great yeah. day being up there. But uh, yep. um, but it was the only bad part about it was the the black flies. Oh yeah. Oh, oh my yeah. god. Yeah. They aren't bad on the island. The mosquitoes are bad on the island, but mm-hmm. they were really terrible up there that day. And they sprayed all of us. Actually, Tim, the owner there, he sprayed us all with a bug spray. But the hands were flying constantly while they were filming us. And I thought, how are they ever going to cut this right. footage? And you don't somebody... see that. 
swatting in front of their eyeballs. Yeah, and, and you uh, don't see that much on the show. You know, I, I look for that because I'm from I'm from the UP of Michigan up and I'm a Uper from Michigan and we got a lot of mosquitoes up there in the summertime. And you're constantly I mean, if you're in the if you're in the woods, if you're in the sun, it's not bad. But if you go in the woods where it's shady, here they come. And you're constantly, you know, in the black flies and stuff. And you don't well, I, I, on ended getting, I ended up getting nine black fly bites that day, <sighs> but it was worth it. They yep. itched for like a week, you know, but they finally <laughs> went away. The only time we hit the mosquitoes bad was one of the times that I left the war room and we were all standing on that porch of the new one. And I mean, it was just like a, a, the James gang or something. I mean, everybody that was everybody plus me was standing there. And man, we were swatting their. I mean, we didn't want to quit talking, but everybody was swatting themselves and, <laughs> and complaining and everything. But we just didn't want to leave. And, right. Uh, yeah, I would. Oh, there's either. so much com camaraderie and and you know, it's. I guess it's like when a team plays basketball together, or when a group of guys plays in a band together, or whatever. You know, you're all in this together, and and you've built this additional camaraderie just from sharing your thoughts and your disappointments and all that. And, right. you know, when people get disappointed that something didn't happen on the curse of Oak Island, how do they think Rick feels? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, Gary says, I found something and they dig down and it's a cap off a can, you know, off a pop can or something. Mm -hmm. How do you think they feel? You know, they, they have exactly. to, they're facing that disappointment <clears throat> every day, day after day yeah. after day. Yeah looking for that one thing for right. the day or whatever. And sometimes they get lucky and find two or three things on the, on the same. Day. Yeah. Yep. But exactly. I wow. can't say a bad word about any of them. Uh, not because of my NDA, just because right. every single person we met up there was just a gem. And uh, yeah, we get that sense I, for sure. I'll go back in a heartbeat. Mm, if it ever, if the day ever comes and this COVID stuff's gone and, and I'm still in the works here with yep. the history. I'll be right back you, up there. I think you've locked yourself in as being, the, the, you know, somebody that has given them good information and all that <laughs> over the years. So it's it's definitely. Uh, I think you're going to stay on their list. Of you're going to be. Out, I think you're going to be back. Yeah, there. yeah, on the list of people who we need to contact. And this is this has been fantastic. I know we just we went a little bit over two hours here, but it's it's okay because I tell you honestly, I could go on for more, but we we. I will ask you this at some point, we'd love to have you come back for certain um, and talk with us some more about this. Maybe after the, uh, the next book <laughs> that you write um, to have it come back and talk about it some more. But one of the things I did want to say, and this was a, a question that went by, I think it was Tom Burns that said, asked it. And I just happened to glance over and notice it. And he said, which came first Nolan's cross or new Ross? Well, I would say, Nolan's cross. I would say that they built it and then followed the cross arm up mm -hmm. to where they wanted to position a, a foundation. But the other right. side of that coin, I guess, would be that they did follow Gold River up. So yeah, yeah, exactly. Maybe, maybe they said, you know, not everybody will know where Gold River goes just from the mouth of it. So exactly, you know. But it, it, part of the uh, part of my book, which I don't want to give too much of the way, but the other really. Right part of it uh involves monolithic stones now that's not megalithic megalithic means really old monolithic means all carved out of one piece mm. or you know that kind of a thing but it, it absolutely proves without any doubt at all that 
stones were used as markers to measure from. <clears throat> and so why would Nolan's Cross be any different than any other exactly. set of stones? Exactly. Yep. And uh, they, the, they only believe that one of them, that Fred moved one of them, I believe, to dig under it to see if there was something under it. But there, you know, people say, well, there's a lot of rocks on Oak Island. Yeah, but there's not a lot of rocks that big. You know, there's a lot of rocks yep. uh, all over the place, but you don't see megalithic or monolithic stones <laughs> like that all over the place. And it it cannot be a coincidence that they're laid out like they are because the measurements are so precise. Exactly. Exactly. So, so, you know, I mean, na nature's pretty good, but they might not be that good. I don't know. <laughs> no, but, it's uh, not that good. No. Uh, Nature doesn't not, do things in straight lines like that and precise measurements. Yeah, no. And it, had it not been for Fred's mapping of his exactly, survey, it would have never showed up. Right, we never, we'd never uh, found it. Yeah, so chances anyway, are nobody would have seen it. There's some science involved again, right there. Yeah, uh, he didn't know what he, he didn't know he was going to find Nolan's cross. He was just surveying every little thing he could find. Next thing you know, he sees a big cross yep. uh, drawing and. Yep. Uh, I wonder if they ever went over all those drawings of his because, boy, when Rick unrolled that on the floor that one show, yeah, like, you've got to be a genius. To I, I, yeah, and I was the same way. I, I, I thought the same thing. I'm looking at this thing laid out, and I'm like, how in the world does anybody make heads or tails? And I brought that up when I we, we had uh, Steve and Laird on the show, and I brought that up with Steve. And I said, now Steve could make sense of that. Yeah. He understands that. He That's the language he speaks. But my goodness, I mean, that was just... And that was just one, one of many. It's just fascinating to me that. Uh, in, the uh, in the detail that he had. Yeah. Was that what was not the modern tools that we have today to do this with? Right. Mm. Right. Because there was no GPS when Fred was doing all that. Exactly. Right. right. <laughs> exactly yeah. It's one right. of the things I loved about the show that Steve was on, on your show, because he said that about all of this databasing that's being done in the background that. You know, you just see him walking up and sticking this pole on a rock and saying, yep. "Oh yeah, that's there." Yeah. But they're they're just massive amounts of data being input. I know for a fact that they're doing a timeline. Uh, I know who's doing it and everything. Uh, a historic timeline, but they're also, uh, I believe, Laird is d databasing archaeological finds and and right. not, not alone necessarily, but leading it and. Steve is databasing GPS coordinates, and uh, there's nothing like a database that you can stand back and look at the big picture and go, "Oh my God, this mm -hmm. is what happened," you know. So, yep. so the faster they get all that done, but it's so complex. Even my books are—I mean, they're not hard to understand, but you know, if you take them as a whole, like this quick talk that we had, you know, it might seem complex. But I'm just a. a fly on the wall compared to I don't all know. the data they have the who dug what what year right 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 part of each group and but it all goes together to tell that story yeah. and you need all of that and that's part of what craig is so good at craig tester i mean oh, he's yeah. a data man he puts all that stuff together and he can look at it in a different way and and combine these things together to come up with an answer for stuff and you know he's been uh one of the most supportive people there for me i mean he almost always answers my email and it's generally always very affirmative mm -hmm. and doug is the one i've worked with the most we worked on the medallion and we worked yep. on the old name what, what a researcher Mer he is Merlagash. Right. oh yeah mm -hmm. i was at the 
it was coincidental that I was at the Nova Scotia archives with him when we found some stuff. Mm-hmm. And then he's the one that met me at the COGS, the College of Geographic mm-hmm. Sciences. We see him wearing the hats and shirts all the time with yeah. the logo on yeah. it. They got a they have a tremendous library there. It's got just tons of old old books of uh Nova Scotia and Scotland, and they have all these drawers of very rare maps where the curator has to take them out with kid gloves on and you're not allowed to touch them. Mm-hmm. They lay them on the table in front of you. But uh, and they have one map they showed us that there's only two in existence. They own one and NASA owns the other. <laughs> and, really? Yeah, so uh, it, they that was the first year I went up, and they said, before you talk to us, we want you to go meet Doug here. Mm-hmm. So I had a slide presentation, and I am I learned so much working with Doug that I'm trying to jam paperwork into a slide presentation because I couldn't do the slide presentation. Or, so right up to the, just about the minute before they started filming, I'm still trying to slot in. Well, this piece of paper would go here with this slide, you know, to try to get it all put together. But yeah. uh um they are so you know they just i I, you know it's it's beyond i can't say enough and i mean i literally cannot say enough about how they make you feel comfortable how they take care of the the technical issues the the logistics of being there and the follow-up too you know and uh so anyway i sure uh fell into something good yeah, you did. Yeah, what a, what a gig, man. What a gig to have, that's for sure. And and you and you're doing so well at it. And like I said, uh, I'm working on Oak Island Nights and uh Oak Island and New Ross will be my next one. Yes, uh, for sure. And uh we have Alessandra not very coming back on. She's going to be on with us uh, in April again. So uh, that'll be a great uh great time. She was fascinating. And again, it was one of those shows where it just went and went and went and went. And I mean, two hours flew by and we were just like, man, we just, we didn't hardly scratch the surface on what we had to talk about. So, yeah, we, we went, my wife and I went with Tim and Alessandra to, well, uh, we sat with them when Doug or when Rick brought us lunch, but then they took us out to dinner the last night we were there. And that's the way it was. It was just like <laughs> I bet there I was no imagine. lack of anything to talk about. You yeah, know? your food is <laughs> cold because you're all talking. It's like, oh, I guess we ought to eat this, you know. <laughs> and the same way when I get on the phone with Rick, uh, unless he's like really pressured for something, mm-hmm. right? But it just goes on and on, and then pretty soon one of us realizes, wow, we've been on the phone a long time. We got yeah, we got to hang this up, you know. But yep. um, they're all just great people, and yeah. and. Uh, uh, I, like I said, I'd be back there in heartbeat. I'd be there on the island every day I could if I lived up that way, but yep. I don't. Right. And so, anyway, well, thanks for having me on. This has and- been oh, fascinating. This has been fantastic. It really has been fascinating. What a what a wonderful uh, couple of hours that we've had here. And, and again, I'd love to have you come back uh, at some point. That would be great um, because I, I know the the members. You know, and and we had some questions. We I think I was I was trying to scan the questions and and keep paying attention. Um, and it looks like you pretty much covered just about it. If I missed somebody's questions, I apologize. But uh, we got a lot of information covered here in a couple of hours, and it was just fascinating. And and I uh, can't thank you enough for coming on the show. It's thank you very much. Mm-hmm. All right. And again, if anybody's going to buy any of the books, I would say go with the latest one, which is Oak Island and New Ross, because mm-hmm. I go into extreme timeline detail. With I got to see that one. Yep. Oh, yeah. gotta, that'll be the next so, one I buy. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all right. Well, you guys, thanks for having me and good luck one, with the show. I've only watched a few of them, but they've been good. 
Oh, well, thank so you very thank much. You. Appreciate Watch that more. very much. Yep. And okay. and I would like, I know, I don't know, I don't think you're a member of the group, but if you'd like to join the group at some point, that'd be great. And we have a lot of people have, I and again, I watched all the stuff going, there's like 280 comments went by while we were doing this. And a lot of it was questions and things like that. And we, we sometimes we ask, I ask the guests, that if you get an opportunity, you can look back at the chat and kind of see what people asked and if you can respond to some of that. But we'd love to have you. Uh, be sure. part of it if you can. And again, thank you so much for coming on with us today. Yes. This has been absolutely phenomenal. Well, you guys really are more than welcome. I'm sorry we had all the technical glitches in the That's okay. <laughs> I practiced <laughs> it for like a week and then boom, everything fell yeah. apart at the last minute. We blame, we blame Oak Island. That's, how, that's yeah, what it's we Oak do. Island. Yeah. It's Oak all Island. It does it. We're talking Oak Island, and that's exactly what happens. So yep. all right. <laughs> you we have a great rest of your day, sir. Thank, thank you. you very much. All right. Bye bye. All right. And for those of you out there uh, who are watching, thank you so much for being here with us today. We've really appreciated the, the support that we get from all of you. And again, this is why Jack and I and Linda and Jan, this is exactly why we do this so that we can share this information with you guys. And I get the information too, and the chat going by and all the good discussion from everybody. We love it so much. And that's exactly why this group and this show exists. So thank you all so very much. And if you would, if you're out watching on the YouTube side, please give us that, uh, give us a thumbs up if you like our content and don't forget to subscribe. We really appreciate that as well very much. Jack, thank you so much for being here, sir. Thank you. We didn't get a lot of words in edgewise, but that's well, okay. We didn't, we didn't need to. Our girl Friday got the day off to be with her family. And that was yep, a good yeah, exactly. Too. Yeah, I seen her. She popped up. I seen her say a couple of things. She just couldn't keep away, but it had to be in between her family that she was enjoying with her having their uh, Christmas in March this year because of COVID, obviously. So. Again, thank you guys so much, Carmen, and you guys and the, the folks that are, you know come on. Appreciate you guys jumping in and saying stuff like that. It just really is great. Thank you for that very much. And you guys have a great rest of your week. We'll see you on Tuesday night. Don't forget, it is the um, I'm sorry. Oh, Wednesday night. Sorry. Wednesday night. Well, we'll we'll kind of see you on Tuesday because we'll all be watching the show, obviously. Uh, and then on Wednesday night at 7.30, we'll have this. Now, we don't have a show, a live show planned for next weekend because I've got to go out of town. I, I'm going to be out of town for several days. Um, I think we're looking to maybe do a, a, a rerun of one of the other shows that we've had. And I think Linda's picking one out for that. So we'll do our best with that. But thank you all so much for being here. We really appreciate you so very, very much. Have a great week and thanks spring, right? All right. Have a good day.